the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're back in Atlanta for the third season of Donald Glover's comedy drama, which belatedly makes its UK debut on Disney+. Heading to New Orleans for the recent US remake of Queer as Folk on Peacock. Back in the future for season four of Westworld on Sky Atlantic. In Manhattan for the second season of Only Murders in the Building on Disney+. And finally, at GCHQ with Simon Pegg for The Undeclared War on Channel 4. And while we're on the subject of The Undeclared War, Simon Pegg joins us on the show this week to talk all about that show with Boyd. I'm James Dyer and welcome to the Pilot TV Podcast, your weekly guide to every show that matters and a podcast that might not quite be up to last week's level of reviewer palooza carnage, but we're not far off this week. Uh, but joining me as we try to get on top of our watch list after last week's Paramount Plus Bonanza are, as you might expect, my two co-hosts. Virtually, though, as due to the ongoing train strike, we're back to remote recording this week. Uh, nevertheless, their smiling faces are staring back at me in little boxes on my screen. It is TV's Boyd Hilton and Swindon's Beth Webb. Hello. Uh, guess what? I, I, I have, or at least had, a Wikipedia page briefly. <laughs> This is the whole thing. And the reason <laughs> the reason I'm mentioning this now is because I wasn't on the Empire podcast this week uh, or last week, as it is. And you never watch any films. And you never watch the films. I had, in fact, seen The Black Phone, which we were reviewing. Mm, so I could okay. have talked all about that. Thanks very much, Boyd. You're all trying right. to besmirch my good name once again. Uh, <laughs> yeah. No, it didn't get to that. But uh, it came up that Helen has a Wikipedia page which talks about the books she's written and all sorts of other stuff. It's quite detailed. It's quite in-depth. Me and Chris do not have them, meanwhile. And so some of the diehards, bless their little cotton socks went on over the course of last weekend and set up a wikipedia page for oh, me gosh. which was loads of fun and it had mention of c i think and the expanse and it talks about molly's game and it had all the greatest sort of podcast hits it was quite fun and then someone said scream house saying it's been deleted so i don't know quite what's happened there maybe wikipedia wow. just don't want me on their site but uh i don't know it maybe it's me. there maybe it isn't it was beth beth went in and deleted <laughs> it yes i 100 percent believe that so yeah. I, it may be it may have been restored now i don't know i don't really know what's happening it's been it's been quite the roller coaster ride. Yeah, it sounds sounds it. You devastated. I am. I was quite enjoying having a Wikipedia page. It's good. It's good. Uh, if it is still there and you are listening to this and wish to contribute, then feel free. Let me have a look. I'm gonna look it up while you're talking. Uh, I don't have one, but there is. But Boyd Hilton does have a Wikipedia um, page. That oh, is the other Boyd um, Hilton, Andrew. The other Boyd Hilton, who is Andrew John Boyd Hilton, who is a British historian and professor and fellow of Trinity College, Cambridge, of course. And um, who I once got sent a check for for one of his. He contributed to some BBC Two <laughs> Open University history program, and they sent me a check for hundred quid. And of course, I sent it back. Um, he's seventy-eight. He had us have a, Wiki, a Wikipedia page, which I'm just looking at now because a couple. Of, the last time I looked at it, which was uh, probably like a year ago, it was a weird mixture of him and me. So it was like mainly about him. It was mainly about him being a Cambridge um, professor. But they're like weird bits like he also contributes to When Saturday Comes and Empire and, you know, like and writes about films and TV and football. I was like, no, I, he doesn't do all those things. Uh, but I think they've tied it up because it now seems to be mainly about him and nothing particularly about me, which is good. Triumph. Yeah, I think you've been taken down, James, unless you perished on the 24th of March, 1582. Um, I mean, and we're speaker at sometimes the House of it feels that way, Beth. I'm not going to lie to you. <laughs> yeah, uh, you you're dead. <laughs> after you're last dead. week, I came very close. Uh, yeah, it feels like they've taken me down. I wonder why. I'm baffled by this. I shall have to get into it later on, find out where my page has gone. I want it back. I demand it back. Wikipedia has a lot of arcane rules, doesn't it, about what they do and don't. She's saying I'm out fallen afoul of their no bell ends clause. <laughs> I 
Yeah, I think you have. Yeah, clause 14C. <laughs> no bellends. No bellends. I mean, that obviously isn't true. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'm sure Adolf Hitler's there for a start. <laughs> I love that stuff. For inspiration. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you couldn't have chosen someone a little bit more, you know, middle of the road, but no, it's just me and Hitler. <laughs> that's, that's what you're saying. Okay. I've gone for it. Fair enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I went straight with the ultimate bellend. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks. Thanks. Thanks, Woody. Uh, well, other than uh, obviously scanning my Wikipedia page for errors, what have you two been doing or watching uh, well i oh my gosh off the back of boyd's recommendation <laughs> watched all of natasha and ellie natasha and ellie is that yep. it Let's get ellie and natasha ellie, ellie and natasha, natasha <laughs> watched all of it in like an Brilliant. evening it was so funny such a funny sketch show they really come after some people like yeah I know. It's very funny. It's wow. Wow. <laughs> not like personally know, but the kind of people what, you know like, day to day. Sketches about yes. risky is what you're saying. Things like that. Like. <laughs> they did it. They did a musical number about risky. It was wonderful. She was there. No. Um, I I wish. But I watched all of that. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I thought it was so, so funny. Like crying, laughing at times. Uh finished hack season two. Also brilliant. You were not wrong about the lesbian cruise. <laughs> uh, like horrible I couldn't watch some of it it was so like toe-curlingly <laughs> yeah. bad it's yeah. what I imagine James being like on a lesbian cruise oh is it, so is it like does it go full cringe <laughs> yes oh, oh, see, yeah. oh see now oh, I'm now yeah. I'm not gonna watch it oh, that's putting you off is it that yeah. scene's gonna put you off from watching mm. it I that can't deal with cringe. Scene. Well, anyway. no, just the, just the, is the show cringe or is it just that one bit? You've watched Hacks. You know no, it's I know, not but I like, it's like, season two. Like, if it's moving into like proper cringe territory, I'm going to struggle. It's not moving in proper um, cringe territory. If anything, I think it's getting a little bit more se- sentimental. Maybe the relationships between the characters take center stage a lot more than the comedy does. Mm. But it was a really good way of showing a comedian who's been working for decades trying to well, thinking she's she's got a hold on this this kind of younger audience and then realizing she's not with the times whatsoever so as i say james you on a lesbian cruise ship right uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah so that was wonderful um and i did such a good job i think at trying to convince james to watch big boys um last week i then went and watched it Again, myself. <laughs> You've rewatched Big Boys. I've rewatched Big Boys because I felt so off the back of that one last week where I was really trying to get you to watch it and trying to get you to watch it, laying out the schedules. I was like, do you know what? I'm just going to watch it again myself. So I had my Saturday morning chores, like three three hours, which is how long it takes to watch the whole season with adverts. And I had three hours carved up, did my washing, did my ironing, did some cleaning, watered my plants, had it on because I'd already seen it. And it was still a complete joy. I loved it. I love it. It's brilliant. Big boys forever. Wow. That was me. Yeah. I think I watched a few episodes twice as well, actually. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Yeah. It's 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 really um addictive like that. Yeah. It, you just you just want to kind of bathe in the joy of it all and the insights and the there is a bit of cringe in that, James, I warn you. I mean, there are some cringe, aren't there? Particularly the scenes where he is trying to have sex with men. <laughs> like there are some really cringe moments. Um, truth to life. I would say. But, true, but true, completely true to life. But yeah. I don't I just a fair warning for James who cannot abide <laughs> Anything that is slightly difficult to watch or, you know. Fremshyman. It's all about the Fremshyman, Boyd. Uh, Yeah, yes, yes. Fair enough, fair enough. Anything else you wish to share? No, that was it, really. 
Was it? Oh, no. Bone to pick with both of you. Ooh. After you oh. both talked up everything I know about love, I went back to it. Yeah. Oh. I, I could only manage two more episodes. I couldn't do it. Oh. I, I can't. God. I couldn't do it. It. I can't watch anymore. What, it, what was the problem? It. The problem is that... Oh, I don't want to sound nasty, but... Given her defining traits are like she's got good haircut and she can wear disco <laughs> pants and you're supposed to really and and her main issues in this show in the the episodes that I watched following was her parents love her too much and a lad <clears throat> to be fair I'm not here for body shaming any shape or form but a lad called her skinny and her parents love her too much and it's not funny and satirical and cutthroat like girls is it's demanding your sympathy and I just don't have it for that character. And it just, it really did just push me away from it. So yeah, I tried. I I, I couldn't do it. <sighs> I'm sorry. Oh I'm not sorry, actually. I take that back. No. So yeah, tried it. wasn't for me. Okay. Fair enough. Well, let me ask you one other thing now. Obi-Wan Kenobi has now finished. Oh, yeah. Have we all seen the finale? Yes. Actually, yeah. yeah. That's reminded me because that and Marvel as well. Uh, yeah. No. Eee. I mean, they tried, didn't they? They really tried. They really tried. They had the tears going. They had, you know, the blue and the red lights flickering off them. But you all know what's going to fucking happen. It was just the lowest stakes of any show I've seen. Where I'm like, sure, but we know what's, you know, they really ramp up the climax, the stuff with Moses Ingram's characters really, like, you know, really charged and climactic. And this final showdown between Vader and Obi-Wan is really climactic and emotional. And they get this big confrontation. But the fact that we so readily know what's going to happen next just takes all of that kind of ambition and angst out of those situations. They're just not nearly as tense and interesting and unpredictable as you need them to be. So it just, yeah, it just kind of dulled it all for me a little bit. Uh, was my main takeaway. But I loved Moses Ingram in this and her trajectory, and I hope she gets to do more stuff generally, but definitely more stuff in Star Wars. I think her character was mm. really interesting. See, I disagree on that. I think she was great. I thought her performance was great. I thought the material she had to work with was lamentably bad. Okay. Uh, and I thought her character art was embarrassing. Uh, I was not happy with that at all. Like it, there's, And I won't go into spoilers, but in the final episode, her motivations for doing what she's doing in the final episode make so little sense. Mm. I genuinely was mm. asking in the spoiler special if someone could explain it to me because I just didn't understand what she was doing or why. It just was gibberish. It uh, and it was confusing. It, it was it was so confusing to me that I actually thought I'd missed something, and so um, <laughs> I I was like watching it on my um, on my Apple TV Plus, and I was like, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna re I actually rewound it. I rewound it a bit because the big scene where she arrives in, in and you know is looking for Luke and all that, and that bit yeah. in the in, with the I, I was like, have I missed something? Why is she doing what she's doing? And yeah, I, I I went back. I was like, no, I think I've just I just don't understand. I genuinely and I hadn't even listened to your. Especially, yeah, I was just like, what the fuck? I, don't, I was absolutely bewildered by that. Yeah, so I was yeah. bewildered by that. I also think it's it, it's like the. Um, I mean, I quite enjoyed it. It was. I, I mean, it was a. It was. It could have been a lot worse for the finale. I mean, it could. A, it a wasn't a terrible episode. Show. I think it was. Yeah, it, it was, wasn't terrible for the show. It was a really was good episode. The, right, mm. it was a good episode for this series. But what it, I did watching the um, the big um, fight. Well, there'd already been a big fight between them earlier in the series, hadn't there? Like in episode two, even, I think, maybe. But what I was thinking in this one was, it really sums up the problem of, 
I mean, as Beth was alluding to, of prequelitis like this, but particularly when something is so iconic and uh, in your mind, when your whole, you know, if you, so anyone who's watched Star Wars, your whole mind is like set to, or Obi-Wan and Darth Vader are like when, you know, the, the original film arrives, right? And you're sitting there watching this fight and, and you're not thinking, well, what you're thinking is, how are the writers going to extricate themselves from this fight? this duel, so that it makes sense that we know in the end, obviously, years later, they're still fighting each other in the films that we've seen subsequently. And so that's what you're thinking. It's like a meta process. You're not engaged by the actual story of these people and what they're doing there and then at that moment in the narrative. You're thinking about a film series that happened in 1977 featuring these characters and how the writers are going to get from that point. To, and it's, it's just a weird sensation to me. It's not real. It kind of makes it seem like an exercise. Literally, it is an exercise rather than a, an authentic kind of organic piece of filmmaking. And not all, and I, I've seen some prequels that kind of work quite well, but this one really felt like they were constantly winking and nodding at us, going, ah, oh, this is how we're going to get to that point. And, you know, and that just, it is fundamentally not, it's just fundamentally not compelling not as compelling as it, sh as it should be, really, or as it could be if it was a different story mm. entirely, yeah. if that makes sense. I'm sure uh, Sophie Petzl in the Spoiler Special <laughs> explains it much better than I do, whatever the hell she <laughs> yes. said. Sophie did join us for the Spoiler Special for the Everyone Kenobi finale. Uh, if you don't subscribe already, empireonline.com slash spoiler specials. Uh, <laughs> it was chaotic, I'm not going to lie. There were five of us in there, uh, and it went wow. on a while, and it got quite mental. I dropped some bombshells. I got yelled at. Uh, it was Yeah, it was great. But I, like, I'm not going to bang on about this forever, because obviously I've saved that for the Spoiler Special, where we've gone into it in great detail. But generally speaking i found this series to be a disappointment um i thought the first episode was very good i thought the last episode was good there was at least one good episode elsewhere in there um but it was patchy and it was uneven and i thought the writing was not the best um but hey ho there you go are there any other shows that you wanted to uh yes of course oh god yeah I mean, you know, here we go. Um, <laughs> hit me with it, Boydie. I'm going to hit you with them. I'm going to hit you with them. First of all, Sherwood. I'm keeping up with Sherwood live um, on TV. Sherwood is uh, uh, being aired by BBC One in double bills. on Not double bills. It's being aired on Mondays and Tuesdays. So as of now, we're up to episode four. And, um, oh, my God, it's getting really fruity and <laughs> quite getting overripe. Fruity. Fruity oh. and overripe. And because there's obviously on one level, it's like a realistic, quite gritty look at the miners' strike and the subsequent fallout and, you know, the politics of that. But then it's got like some really, some new characters come in in episodes three and four. Lindsay Duncan arrives in episode four to basically explain the um, massive political conspiracy that's going on in this country before our very eyes. And that's like a really maverick moment of writing by James Graham. But hmm. I went along with it. There's a really quite over-the-top bunch of miners that arrive from the strike in town to, to, to go to a kind of, you know, to commemorate um, one of the characters who's died. The whole... It's just gone really quite massively... Um, Non non realist, if you like, it's gone more poetic. I mean, there are literally poetic references to. There's people reciting po poems, in fact, in crucial scenes. It's gone quite baroque, is another word I'd use. But wow. I'm loving it. <laughs> yeah, 
I've come up with all these words, but I'm loving it because it's much, it's just, it's kind of mutating to something much bigger and more ambitious, I think, than even what, I mean, I loved it to the first two episodes anyway, but it's really big. Uh, I'm trying to avoid the B word, <laughs> bold, because I'll be using it later with Atlanta. Baroque's um, great, though. Yeah, Baroque. It's Baroque. And it's it's um, it's fascinating. And I don't know how it's going to all play out. I'm fascinated. I can't wait to see the last two episodes, but I'm trying to. I know they're on BBC, uh, our BBC Previews website, but I think I'm going to wait to see them live uh, Monday and Tuesday. But it's fantastic. Yeah, one of uh, someone tweeted me, us, um, about it, quite rightly, saying... Um, uh, Greg Sloss tweeted me saying, I'm loving show it on BBC One. The tone and government conspiracy plot reminds me of the Shadow Line, which is one of the great, Shadow Line is one of the greatest TV dramas um, ever. And it is a bit like that as well. I think that's a, that's a brilliant comparison. I mean, it's different in many ways, but it's not quite as stylized, heavily stylized as, um, as the Shadow Line was. But it's a fantastic piece of work by James Graham. And the cast is so amazing. And uh, um, everyone in David Morrissey, Never been better. Everyone in it is absolutely brilliant. So I'm loving that. Um, then I wanted to mention the, the one I mentioned last week that we, I've, I should have forced this to Blocko 181, which I've now watched all of. It's all on Sky Atlantic. This crazy Italian mix of gangster drama, street gangster drama, with basically Euphoria slash Larry Clark style teen threesome celebration oh and the really interesting it's absolutely magnificently beautifully shot um and directed and acted um I, I went on about it a bit last week but now I finished it it's so impressive i think but the most interesting thing about it is this central relationship between two guys who are lifelong friends and this girl and they just kind of naturally end up in this throuple basically <laughs> and it's not talked about they don't discuss it they don't plan it they don't even talk about any definitions of sexuality or whatever. They just go for it. And it carries on happening throughout the whole series. And it's fascinating <laughs> to me how kind of just natural the filmmakers and everyone makes it seem. And it's, it's really, from that point of view, I mean, forget the extreme um, bloody violence and drug taking and all of that that also happens in it. From that point of view... It's actually different, I think, to Euphoria in, in that way, particularly. I feel, I think it makes quite a big meal in its own way of how it deals with sexuality and gender and all of that, which, fair enough. I mean, it's, it's interesting. But this is very, like, the most relaxed depiction of essentially a bisexual <laughs> threesome I've ever seen on television. Oh, and for great. that, it should be applauded, I think. So a realistic threesome as opposed to the unrealistic threesome, which caused me to stop watching another, was it Another Life? I can't remember. One with Katie Sackhoff. Oh yeah, yes, yeah. Unrealistic yes. threesomes. Oh God, I was yes. like, I'm not having this, not having it. So okay, was, so this is the antidote right. yeah, to no, another life. Is, it is absolutely an antidote. This is the most naturalistic, convincing, um, and yeah, threesome situation ever on on TV or film. I am saying, uh, I think that's what I've watched. Yeah, and Obi Wan. That's it. Yeah, we covered it. <laughs> okay, well, let's then move on to. This week's listener question. We've not had one in a few weeks. I feel we should definitely do one today. But what should it be? I had a question that I rolled out there, and it was poo-pooed. Poo-pooed across the board <laughs> and replaced by another question, which I have in turn poo-pooed. So what I'm going to suggest we do is maybe cover off both of these questions, but very, very briefly. What? So your question was... What was your question, Boyd? Come on, let's hear it. What was it? My was question Kate? was... Go my on. question was... The Kate Bush situation, I, I, I could bang on about the whole, the Kate Bush Stranger Things situation. Stranger Things have 
as everyone now knows, propelled Kate Bush to number one. And she's had a massive um, renaissance. She was on Women's Hour this week. Brilliant, lovely interview with her. She's such an absolutely fantastic human being. She's giving so much kudos to the Duffer Brothers. It's lovely. She's just being incredibly generous. Um, I mean, I could have done with the interviewer asking her whether she's going to ever bring out any more music ever again. But, you know, that's huh. fine. I'll let it go. Um, she was so... she. That's her first interview for years, maybe a decade. I don't know. Fucking years. So the fact that Kate Bush is back with us, I was like, one of the things that I've read quite a lot in, in, in articles about this whole phenomenon of Stranger Things making Kate Bush a superstar all over again with its use of running up that hill is they often say in the introduction, Kate Bush, who rarely allows her music to be used in TV and film. Now, I'm, now I'm sorry. Now, I love, I love what they've done with running up that hill and Stranger Things. It's brilliant. And there's something, but she actually lets people use her music quite frequently. And so my question was, what's your favourite use of Kate Bush music in a TV series apart from Stranger Things? And all I'd say is, so my, I will quickly say that Running Up That Hill was used in It's a Sin um, by um, Russell T. Davis. And I remember him telling me when he interviewed it from Empire, well, the very first interview I did about It's a Sin in Empire, that he was very excited about that Kate Bush had given specific personal permission for them to use Running Up That Hill in It's a Sin. So I'm, I bet Russell T. Sin, they're thinking, I used it first. I used it like, you know, like two years ago in my show um, before Stranger Things came along. So there's that. Then there's the fact that this woman's work in particular, which is one of her greatest songs, I would say one of her top five greatest songs, is that this woman's work has been used in a lot of different places. Handmaid's Tale, brilliantly. Extras, Ricky Gervais used it in Extras in an excellent montage um, in that show. Um, and it's even been used, and this is going to devastate you, James, I'm sure, it's used on Love Island. So right. this idea that Kate Bush, by the way, is it doesn't let many people use her music. She allowed it to be used in Love Island, for God's sake. So, I mean, good honour. I'm thinking she's not a snob, unlike James. She'll allow her music to be used on a reality TV show. But those are some of my favourite uses. And it was also used running up that scene in Pose as well, the very first episode. So it's been used in three. Yes. So um, those are my favourite examples uh, of, of uh, Kate Bush music in TV. Given that I can't name another Kate Bush song, I'm not sure I'm going to be much used to this. <laughs> no, fair enough. Although I have Googled it and cloud busting appears in The Handmaid's Tale. So mm. there you go. Yes. Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, in a brilliant, brilliant scene. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Handmaid's Tale loves Kate Bush. I mean, you've covered most of them. The, the pose one was definitely really beautiful. I don't watch the violence. I sadly have missed that. Can't but believe you is... don't watch Love Island. I've watched some of them. I haven't watched all of them. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It's just, it is quite, quite amazing how, like they've used it for the trailer, haven't they? For the second volume now, like it's quite amazing yeah. the the impact that song has had um, now. She said I, on, like, the, on the radio, I thought everyone's got, the world's gone mad. Yeah, it feels like it's mad. They, don't you think, I was thinking about this actually, that for the, fin the final two episodes, which arrive this Friday, that... Um, they must be so tempted if they're if they're not using a Kate Bush song in the final two episodes. They must be so tempted, the Duffer Brothers, to like find a Kate Bush song to shoehorn huh. in for the final for the finale. Surely, I mean, you know, let's get Hounds of Love in there somewhere or whatever. But yeah, it's an incredible phenomenon. The whole thing. Now we can do your other question, James. Poo -poo Sorry, poo question number one. The other question, which came from Sean Dempsey, and he said that uh, as an Irishman living in Australia, I sometimes have access to shows before we do, and he was shocked and appalled that Beth No Patience Web didn't get on with Station Eleven. Just kind of drop that in there. Modern woman web. Modern woman <laughs> in a modern world. <laughs> 
But his point was, despite your poo-pooing, Beth, he went out and bought the book of Station Eleven, finished it the other night, and he was shocked by how massively different it was from the TV show. So his question was, of all the adaptations of books into TV shows, what is the best one that is superior to the book version? That's a big, big can of worms, isn't it? Like, is it better than the book? Because things are rarely better than their books, I would say. Um, so that's a tricky one. That said, uh, one show that has finished recently, Shining Girls. Now, I have to be honest, I've not read the book of Shining Girls. However, when I finished Shining Girls, when I got to the end of it, it does a very clever thing Shining Girls does, and I'm not going to spoil it if you haven't watched it yet, but uh, it, it it's so layered with things mythology and law that isn't explained there are so many things in it which are tantalizingly there and suggestive of so much but are never truly explained so much so that i desperately wanted to do a spoiler special for this just so that i could ask these questions like what does this mean why is that there but i don't understand this and i wanted to know all this stuff and so i thought you know what i do there's a book out there it's brilliant i'll find out i went out half the stuff in the tv show is not in the book like half of it is not in the book so so much has been added to this tv show the mythology has been layered it's been made more mysterious it's been made more complex uh and from what i have read of the book by which i mean i read the synopsis of the book the detailed breakdown synopsis i was like you're not allowed to base an argument on reading a synopsis the arrogance james the arrogance for how you're doing that confessing to it and carry I'm carrying on it. anyway. <laughs> I'm doing it. I read the Wikipedia page. I feel fully qualified to talk about this book. Uh, it seemed to me that the book's central premise, it's like where the title comes from, is weirdly not really properly touched on in the series, whereas the series has a whole load of other stuff, which is really, really, really good. So even though I haven't seen the book, so I can't definitively say the Shining Girl series is better, I am saying that anyway. So there you go. Um, the other thing I would say is I'm not gonna I'm not gonna say that the TV series of The Expanse is better than the books because I'm still reading the books and they are amazing as well. But again, I think they did an incredible job there of adapting that for the screen. No one needs to hear me bang on about The Expanse anymore. But I'm just gonna leave it there and say that is an incredibly good adaptation of source novels. I, as someone who has read the book, <laughs> I would put forward, and this is a testament to both, I would say, but I would put forward normal people in that I thought that mm. obviously the writing is is very eloquent and ahead of its... She's, she kind of belies her age, uh, Sally Beanie, in a lot of ways. I don't always agree with her attitudes towards things, but I do think she's very eloquent and her story's always incredibly robust, but it's something about the two performers in that show that just elevates everything that she wants to say. I mean, I was very... I'm sure a lot of people are very sceptical when they saw that that book was being adapted but to be so pleasantly surprised and gripped by what happened in that show i think was, yeah. was really really wonderful i'm not i can't say the same sadly for conversations with friends but normal mm. people definitely well i love the show but i haven't read the book so but then that doesn't stop me i'm sure <laughs> i can, see, sure I can read... find it on wikipedia so actually i'm for <gasps> yes absolutely it's, it's better than the book as i have read it on wikipedia i'm gonna say there's that, that there. there's that great joke in knives out isn't there where they're like oh we've read the tweet about the new yorker profile yeah. about you from yeah. benoit blanc and that is that is you james yeah. i have read yeah. the, Definitely. the synopsis yeah. Yeah. About I, read, the I read the synopsis on wikipedia blurb, i am fully from blurb 
Yeah, yeah. I'd say it. I, like, like, say something like um, Bosch, I think, is an excellent adaptation. Again, I can't, and I have read some of the Bosch books, and they're very, very good. But I think Titus Welliver mm. brings a certain life to that character, which I think is great. Is it better than the books? I think it's hard to say, but I very much think they're of a piece. Uh, Last Kingdom, I really love what they did with that as well. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that's a great interpretation of what they do in the books. And The Witcher, and again, I've read some of The Witcher books, but not all of them. So again, am I going to say it's better? I think... I prefer okay so I what I can say this is The Last Wish which is the short story Witcher book uh, which a lot of the first season of The Witcher is based on I do think the TV version is better than that short story book I think it works better as a kind of uh, as a TV narrative with, with those episodes uh, but as for the, the ongoing Witcher saga which we're now getting into I've not read that so I can't comment and I've not read the Wikipedia page either so I definitely can't comment I was racking my brains for ages about this one which is why I, I came up with the Kate Walsh alternative because I couldn't think of one for a long time but then I did <laughs> then I suddenly remembered one which is this book isn't terrible by any means it's, in fact it's a good book but i do think the tv show is absolutely on another level and it is gillian as i believe her name is pronounced flynn's sharp objects oh, sharp objects mm. now yes yeah. so gillian flynn wrote gone girl gone girl gone girl um oh, and they did a super gone girl they did a that for me is an absolute object lesson, Gone Girl, in how to make a film of a brilliant book. Because Gone Girl is a fantastic novel. It's incredibly involving and immersive all the way through. It has a brilliant twist that they carry out superbly in David Fincher's film version. Sharp Objects is not as good a novel as Gone Girl. So I read Sharp Objects after I read Gone Girl, and it was a bit of a disappointment. It's quite, it's more, in a way, it's got a lot more going on in it, and um, it tackles a lot more issues, if you like, um, trauma and addiction and all these things, um, which are all there in the TV series. But it gets quite dense and knotted and a bit kind of confusing, the novel, I think, whereas Gone Girl, the, the novel is so brilliantly digestible and entertaining and all that shot by which is just messier as a novel but the tv version is absolutely superb um it's one of my favorite miniseries of the last like five ten years mm. and what they leave out and what they put in and what they move around in the narrative and that legendary ending which kind of yeah basically but, but go on they you d- and this, I think, is just a maddening creative choice. The solution to the whole mystery, the big twist, is in yeah. the credit sting, which a I significant know, number of people, brilliant. including me, missed. <laughs> no, no, it's so brilliant. It's genius. Because who I, watches I, when the credits start? Like, no one with the, the TV show. Credits. No, not in TV, though. No, the credits stop. Move yes. on. You know, and Netflix doesn't even <laughs> let you watch them. So, I mean, God. They'd, they'd have to let you watch Sharp Objects. That's why it's on fucking HBO, not Netflix. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, I love that element of it as well. I, I, I you know, I, love it. I mentioned I mentioned it fairly frequently. So, but for me, that is an absolutely brilliantly r- ratcheted up TV series from a perfectly good, but not quite as amazing a novel as the TV series is. So that is yeah. my. Final and only answer to this question. Although I'm sure the next Lord of the Rings series, which is going to take all that torpid, tedious oh, bullshit gosh. from the J.R.R. Tolkien books Honestly. and turn it into a proper TV series narrative, will be much better than the books. See, I always think that I'm like the one who tends to come up with indefensible opinions, but your hatred of Lord of the Rings, coupled with your hatred of Doctor Strange and your random, random things that you sort of open fire on, just baffle me. Like Lord of the Rings, the greatest film trilogy of the last however many decades and just yeah it's, 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 it's an extraordinary cinematic achievement and Boyd is having none of it uh, <laughs> I don't mind the films the, it's the books that are my the books are unbelievably boring I 
can't uh, see. <laughs> I mean, you're right. You're not wrong. Yeah. Like, so I'm a massive film. fantasy nut, no, but I, I find his books yeah. hard oh. work. And I know no, it's that's sacrilege. Yeah, no, no, and the films are, it, but, are perfectly mm. entertaining, yeah. The books, yeah. are, the books are the just books, they are, tedious. <laughs> they are. It's like, okay, maybe some plots going, oh, no, it's Tom Bombadil singing about his fucking breakfast. Yes, uh, I, <laughs> right. I, I'm a little bit with you on that. <laughs> but That's, I believe the was question was Thank you. largely about so obviously books that, that, that fundamentally change their source material. So, I mean, I know something like Friday Night Lights is obviously based on a non-fiction book. What's that? What's right now? Oh, well, Beth, I'm glad you asked. So it's an American <laughs> football series, which you won't have seen. And uh, <laughs> also, also, things are changing. I would actually say that uh, Hannibal, the Ooh. TV film Brian Fuller's Hannibal, which does yeah. very different things yeah. with those characters, has a completely different texture to the Thomas Harris novels. And uh, I think what the, what he did with that was magnificent. The fact they never got to finish it is a travesty. But uh, that was an incredible series. Uh, is it better than the books? It's very different to them. That's all I'll say, but the books are very good as well. Um, by the way, you've added your own spin to this question because the actual question was just, out of all the adaptations of books into TV shows, which is the best one that's far superior to the book? There's nothing about oh. changes or You've added oh. that whole element to Did it. Did I add that? Yeah. Okay, fine. I just yeah. obviously made that up. Fine. All right. Well, I guess we've answered that question. Just saying. So uh, if you have a question, do send it to us via the social medias uh, at Pilot TV Pods, and we may or may not answer it depending on whether we've got time. <laughs> Let us get on now with this week's guest. We've already mentioned the Undeclared War, which we'll be talking about a little bit later on. But Simon Pegg, star of said show, joins us on the podcast this week to talk about hacking, defending the land, and working at GC. CHQ on television, not in real life, obviously, because that would be weird. Anyway, this is Boyd and Simon Pegg talking the undeclared war. Is that is that your special place at home? Uh, this is my office, yeah. This is where I where my right, excellent, my little sanctuary. Oh, you got a little bit. Uh, you, you've got the whole story to the front of the pack. There is that because of the recent Kate Bush. Uh... Simon, it's always there. It's always there. Kate Bush is always at the front of my collection. It's it's purely absolutely. I'm delighted that so many youngsters have found her. I know. <laughs> I know. It's fantastic, isn't it? Are you a Stranger Things um, aficionado? My daughter really is. I, right. I watch it, um, but she absolutely loves it. But then she was. She's been listening to Kate Bush since she was a tiny kid. So right. it's no. Right. It's no new thing for her. She's she's a woman of distinction, obviously, and, and, and taste. She is. Absolutely. Yes. Um, thank you for joining the Pilot TV podcast. Um, this project, um, I mean, it's safe to say it's, I, I'm seeing it as your return to television. I mean, obviously, you've, you've, you've been in you've been in various TV projects, um, but this feels like a meaty role in a big, ambitious, bold series. Does it feel like that way to you that yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of a, a, a quite a significant thing? It is, and not least because it's on Channel 4, which is, of course, where, you know, I sort of pretty much started out. So, um, uh, yeah, and I, I think stuff that I've done televisually before now, since my last last time I was on, has been kind of uh, some streamer stuff and a bit on American TV. But this this feels because it's home, you know, because it's Channel Four. It feels significant, absolutely. And Peter Kosminski says it took it's taken five years to get this to to, to screen. I believe. At what point yeah. did you get involved? I got involved. I guess when did we start shooting? July last year. I I came in on board. Maybe the end of twenty twenty that it came to me. Um, and I read this, the, the series, um, and, you know, obviously Peter's reputation precedes him and I was, um, delighted that he sent it to me. So, um, 
Yeah, I, I was an immediate yes from me. And Danny is an interesting character, isn't he? Because he's kind of he's a really good guy. That's the thing that struck me watching watching uh, <laughs> the first episode. That he, you kind of love him, really, because he's not only is he. I mean, unless he has a big turn <laughs> later on in the series, but right now. <laughs> He's very caring for his employees. He's kind of on the right side against, you know, government forces that are kind of questioning him, et cetera. Did, is it hard to make, sometimes actors say it's hard to make a good guy interesting, but he does seem interesting as well. Yeah, I mean, Peter was very sort of um, specific about who Danny was and what his role was at GCHQ and, and his relationship with his staff, you know, who he cares deeply about. Um and that that was all very much on the page. And I think in terms of what's happening in the show, it's it's very interesting to play Danny because yes, yes, he is a good guy, but at the same time, he's he's having to wrangle so many sort of negative forces. And that's not just from you know the 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 adversarial hack; it's also from people within his own sort of um, on his own team in a way, and not at GCHQ. It's interesting because. Peter's obviously usually very critical of the state. And I think one of the interesting things about this show is that it's kind of pro-state in a way, but it lit prostate. <laughs> but, <laughs> That's different. It, <laughs> it, um, but it just shows that it, what he's saying is it, it, the state isn't all bad. You know, there are people who, uh, who work for, on, the, on behalf of, of governments who aren't necessarily involved in their kind of political ideology and are, are working for the good of the people, you know. There are assholes in, in, in the show, it should be said. Um, Very much so, yeah. Yes. Yeah, and, and, you know, obviously the, the, the thing that Danny's most concerned about, his biggest fear is, is a premature retaliation against the wrong people, you know, which can, which can be extremely dangerous. And, and often hackers will make it look as if it's a certain player when it's not, you know. And so there's a – if, if people are too – uh, hasty in their retaliation, they retaliate against a non-aggressor and cause another conflict. You know, it's it's a yeah. minefield. It's actually terrifying. I, I, when I got to the end of the first episode, I felt like it was a genuinely scary concept because you know it reminded me of being worried about you know nuclear war when I was a kid. It's like it's <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's it's. Did you know about this whole? I mean, I you know, I guess we all know a little bit what the threat might be, but this really brings it home. I learned so much making this show. And um, and you're right, it reminded me when I read it, it reminded me of Threads. Do you remember that show? Yeah, that was yeah. On oh God. yeah. In the 80s, which is, you know, this terrifying show about a nuclear attack. And this felt similar in that it was, as Peter said, it was nothing, nothing takes place in the show that hasn't been wargamed or, or, or sort of imagined in the real world or is a possibility in the real world. But the things I learned in terms of, you know, cyber warfare tactics um, was shocking because it's stuff I felt like everybody should know this, you know. The, the, in, in episode two, the the, um, the, the sort of retaliation, this is not particularly a spoiler, but one of the retaliations that they actually come up with is to attack um, a sort of um, propaganda center in Russia where people are basically just on social media pretending to be British and American and arguing with each other and retweeting the arguments and so that people from the countries that they're pretending to be latch onto uh, these arguments and they, then they become these huge divisive kind of conflicts online. And the touch paper are, are, are these people these, that are just having fake conversations. And you can see that's happened throughout Brexit, throughout the American election, you know, and it's, it's incredibly clever, subtle kind of, kind of, uh, you know, provocation, but it, it really works. And the fact that we don't, 
I didn't know that. I didn't know they were actually paid people who are just paid to be on Facebook spreading lies. And it, yeah, it was kind of like, holy shit. <laughs> yeah. And it's quite depressing to think that this, this stirring of conflict by like Russian bots, as you say, works. It's, 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 prov- it, it's working before our very eyes. Yeah, absolutely. And even, even as it unfolds before us, people still don't really know exact extent of, of, and not just from Russia, you know, from all our kind of supposed adversaries. Um, and we all have exploits within each other's cyber infrastructure. So we all have big bombs placed within each other's systems that can just go off. It's like the old nuclear deterrent, you know, mm. and mm. that is, is kind of utterly terrifying. One thing I wondered is it's, it's, it's set in GCHQ as like, it's like almost like a workplace uh, drama, various points. Do you have to get permission from yeah. them to, to, to do all that, to, to kind of set something th- in, in, a, in that real place, or do you just go ahead and do it? Well, I don't know, because I, I think we just go ahead and do it. I mean, Peter obviously did some extensive research, and, you know, the, the extent of that, I, we don't know. I mean, we're not sure entirely because we're not it, – it's kind of all classified, you know, which is fair enough. I think, you know, the people he spoke to – wanted to keep it that way but uh, peter is incredibly thorough in his sort of investigation of the truth and i don't think anything in the show is a is a complete punt i think it's all fa- it's all based in a in 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 knowledge you know and truth and you know i used to i used to live right next to gchq as a kid and two of my two of my uncles worked there and i and i had no idea what they did but they just had jobs in an office, you know, so it, 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 it's not a huge stretch to imagine what that place is like inside, you know, even though it's incredibly mysterious, you know, mm. like sort of Willy Wonka, mm. you know, we used to look at it from through the gates, like wonder who's going in, who's coming out. You know, it is, as you say, it's a workplace. Yeah. That's weird that you're, you've got two family connections to, to GCHD. I got three, actually. Oh, my, wow. my brother did, my brother did all the electrics in the new building. <laughs> That's incredible. He's a spark. <laughs> genuinely incredible um and we should say in this did, did you, how much of your own you know you i mean coding is one of the fascinating um elements of this show which I, you know for me has just been a a kind of complete like a foreign language but the way it's depicted is very clever isn't it because um peter kind of dramatizes visually dramatizes what coders kind of a going through somehow how would you explain how he's done that? and how was it in the scripts that you read like did it make it clear what was going on in the scripts yeah well when i first read this obviously the first scene is is in what became known as code world which is basically hannah's kind of you know it's kind of a, a literal extrapolation of what's going on in in um in sarah's um mind as a coder and it, it basically helps us to kind of as non-coders as i am even though i'm i talk a lot of jargon in in the undeclared war but i mean hannah was she she was so on it that she went and learnt specific coding i'm not as method as that and uh and and as such a lesser actor than Khalid <laughs> brand but um yeah it's it's basically our way of seeing her deciphering code and how she battles code literally with a tool belt and she'll open a little door and go through it. And I think it's a really smart way to, to sort of depict that and make it interesting because coding is obviously incredibly complex, extremely rarefied in terms of who knows how to do it. And I think if it had just been screens of noughts and zeros, people would have been falling asleep quite early. Um, so Peter, in a rare kind of flight of fancy because he's not really done that kind of thing before created this this sort of mythic world called code world and whenever sarah's in there and she's figuring stuff out finding these little nuggets of information she is in this kind of literal um um representation of her of her mind 
which I thought, yeah. I thought I was great. And so, and what I liked about it when I watched it as well was that it, it, it you get it very quickly. You know, you kind of yeah. understand what we're seeing very quickly. And so, um, whenever you go in it subsequently, you know exactly what's going on. We're in her mind, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, were you not tempted then to learn coding just a bit, just to kind of, you know, or, or did, did you think you'd get too obsessed with it and it would take over your life? <laughs> you, you and me have probably had the same BBC Micro and Commodore 64 in our school of 900 kids. Yeah. That's all we had, you know, in a ZX Spectrum. Yeah. Um, and, I, you know, also I, I'm, I play a hacker in Mission Impossible. You know, I, I should really kind really of know this should. stuff. But... Yeah. <laughs> it would make those scenes even more believable than they are. Yeah, I know, I know, I know. I maybe I should, but I feel like you know, I'm I'm very much. I, I, obviously, I want to deliver the lines with a with a degree of verisimilitude, but um, at the same time, I, my time is probably better spent, you know, watching horror films with my daughter. Yeah, oh, for sure, for sure. Um, <laughs> Peter Kuzminski has a very interesting way of working, doesn't he? I've interviewed actors who've been in his stuff before, and he doesn't. He, he gives you these very detailed biographies, doesn't he? Of 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 the characters did he give you one for you and what was the most surprising thing about the biography of your character he did he gave me a whole backstory for danny and and i i i utterly loved that you know i mean he is such a great actor's director he really cares about the the experience that we have as actors on his set and he's incredibly sensitive and looks after us makes sure that you know where we have the absolute optimum conditions to sort of perform in which is amazing. And um, yeah, he gave me this this whole history of Danny who was um, adopted from foster care as a kid and, you know, gave me his, his, his wife's name and his son's name and his interests outside the, um, outside the office and stuff. And, you know, um, that he was a big fan of rugby. He grew up playing rugby and he's a big rugby fan. And, uh, and so, um, yeah, I, I I bought this this little rugby ball off Amazon just to have as a little stress ball for Danny. Just, to, but that was so nice because it gave me um, a little kind of in on on him and and that little kind of detail. It makes such a huge difference, you know. And it's not to say, you know, that, that, that I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about the idea of method acting. Uh, method acting is something else, but there's there's a lot to be said for preparation and for kind of having a a deeper understanding of the character you're playing without it being too sort of, you know, pretentious or unnecessary. And Peter just has that pitched absolutely right. And it was just so, it was so good to feel like I knew the man as I was playing him and what mm. was at risk for him. You know, obviously he has family at home and I mean, that comes into play later in the story, you know, when he starts thinking about what should I do about, you know, what, what should I do with my family kind of thing. Mm. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's it was it was a real treat. I bet. Yeah. And, and Peter Kosminski struck it struck me at that launch actually watching him and listening to his. He he's, it seems like an incredibly civilized kind of you know old school gentleman kind of kind of figure to me. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like is he is he like that on set as well? Is he just you know? I can't imagine him running around screaming like some directors might do. Oh God, no. Yeah, he's absolutely the same on set. He's really, you know. Thoughtful. He's incredibly intelligent. He would come and see us in the makeup trailer in the morning, which you know, off that very rarely, if ever, happens. Um, you know, he'd talk to us all about what was coming up that day, and and um, he he's just um, yeah, he's just an absolute gentleman. And like when we did, I remember we we had a day, obviously because we were shooting in the middle of COVID, and one of the actors got pinged on the track and trace thing in the morning. 
So we had to go through some, you know, tests and make sure everything was fine to shoot that day. And I said to people, well, look, while, while, while this actor is away, why don't we cross, why don't we block shoot some stuff and, you know, we can shoot my scenes with a stand-in or a, a, an AD or something. He said, no, I, I wouldn't want you to do that, Simon. We'll, we'll wait, we'll wait. And I was <laughs> like, well, that's, you know, putting our needs ahead of the production's needs is, is not something that happens that often, you know. Yeah. And I was really, really taken by that. I loved him so much. He was such a lovely man to work for. Yeah. He, and he's so, like the way, and he's, he, he thinks really carefully when he speaks, like he, he, he's, he's the opposite of me. <laughs> Even at the launch when he was being interviewed, there was a lot, he, he's pausing and we're thinking of what he's going to say rather than just like, you know, like with the blundering in like anyone else would do. Yeah. yeah. You talked about the Channel 4. I do want to ask you about the Channel 4 issue because this is a reminder that, you know, yeah. Spaced was an incredibly bold piece of TV back in the day that, mm. you know, launched yours and loads of careers. And it seems incredible that Channel 4 is, a, as, it's, as we stand at the moment, about to be privatised, doesn't it? It's a tragedy, you know. It, I mean, Channel 4 is, is, is a sort of, you know, bastion of, of, of the, you know, the bleeding edge of, of kind of British cultural ex expression. And it's a place where things can be said that, that probably won't be able to be said on a on a privately owned sort of uh, network. It, it, it's it's the voice of not so much the people as as a kind of as groups of people that don't often get a voice, you know. And I think that's this vital. I, I you know, and I think about Channel Four's history and what it's created, what it's added to British culture. It's it's you know not not just in terms of television, but also music and art and politics and you know the sort of documentaries that have come out of channel four the experiments the risks channel four has taken as soon as their shareholders involved in that none of that's going to happen anymore it'll just get blanded out into something far less exciting and you know channel four has had to kind of like figure itself out over the years and it's you know there's stuff on channel four which is much more mainstream in a kind of Channel 4-y way, you know. But mm. Big Brother is a classic example of that, something that was almost like an anthropological experiment which turned yeah. into a sort of, you know, phenomenon. Yeah. But, you know, they've, they, they, they've done it and they've, they've managed to strike a balance between pure entertainment and genuinely sort of heartfelt, thoughtful drama, comedy, documentaries. And I, it's just a, it's, it's, it's another just, you know, nail in the coffin of free expression, really, I think. Yeah, completely. Yeah, Peter called it cultural vandalism at the, at the launch. It is totally yeah. cultural vandalism. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I want to ask you about a couple of other, the. the I'm, I'm watching the boys. This current season of the boys. Obviously, you 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 <laughs> pop up in um, every now and then. Now, I mean, yeah. th this has pushed back the boundaries, hasn't it? Of 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 television, of what is allowable, what you could giant penises, a man going into a giant <laughs> penis. Oh, I mean, it's unbelievable. I know it's extraordinary, but the comics were always that. You know, in fact initially DC were, you know, the kind of publishers and they eventually just had to, they just let it go because it was just too hot to handle. You know, this, the stuff that Garth Innes and, and Derek Robertson were putting out there was so, so beyond the pale. And I think Eric Kripke, the direct, the, the producer of, of, of the boys has just doggedly wanted to make sure that's reflected in the show. And for the, for the fact that the comic book, the fans of the comic book would be annoyed if it wasn't. So, yeah, it's extraordinary. When I, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, you did not just do that. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Do you get those bits of the script as well as your scenes? Do you get the bits where you get to see a man going inside a giant penis? Yeah, well, I remember on the, when, I, when I was in the first season, when I was on set, they were, they'd just shot a 
scene where that character, I guess it was the little man, yeah. had, had dived into a woman's vagina. Yes. Uh, not, not, with, not with such graphic uh, results as, as was the beginning of season three, but it was already there. They were already setting out their stall and just testing. But of course, you know, there you go. I mean, Amazon, you know, say what you like. You, it, it, it is, a, it is a, a company which depends on its subscribers. And if that's kind of what the people want, then that's what people seem to get, you know. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it's brilliantly uncompromising, yeah, from that point of view. Yeah, I, I shot my scene for this series from literally from my house. Wow, Eric just like they sent me some costumes. Yeah, I was like on the, I just did it on a Zoom That's call. Brilliant. It was That's great. brilliant. That is great. <laughs> um, it, it does feel like. What do you feel about the whole? world? I mean, it's, it's a hoary old topic, but I'm going to ask anyway. The current world of streaming TV, particularly huge budgets, huge stars taking part, as opposed to films. Like, do you want to do a big? Do, you know, I can see you doing a juicy, meaty, big series that you create for. Netflix or Amazon or whoever, would you like to do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the thing is the the landscape has changed so much, even in the last five years, let alone 10, uh, the budgets that are available to, to TV, to program makers now, you know, you're able to make television on a cinematic scale. And um, there, there's something I'm developing at the moment, which I'm hoping will, you know, will go. Um, it's all kind of feels like, we're at the, on the edge of the bubble, the streamer bubble bursting a little bit. You know, people are kind yeah. of pulling back a little bit, a yeah. little less like go for it. But um, yeah, I, absolutely. I feel like it's a, it's a really fruitful playing field. And because there is no such thing really anymore as the mid-budget movie, no one's really, you know, it's not like you can make a, you make a blockbuster or you make an indie now. There's nothing mm. in between anymore. Um, you know, that that kind of television does give you the opportunity to, to explore uh, things in a grand scale and also take a little more time to tell stories. You know, the thing that I'm developing was a, a book that me and Crispy and Mills have been sat on for 10 years and, and initially kind of saw it as a feature, but the more we realized that we couldn't really cram it into 90 minutes. And that is one of the arts of filmmaking as well. It's telling a story in a specific time. I get frustrated with films that run really long because they're mm. kind of cheating in a way. It's like, you know, you got to make you got to make your your running time so that it feels like a movie, not like a chore, you know. Yeah. But um, but television suddenly enables you to luxuriate a little bit, and you can spend a little bit more time, develop the characters with a little bit more sort of space, and, and I think that's really interesting. It's not it's not the poorer cousin to cinema anymore, you know. Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. Um, I'm not going to ask you about um, Tom Cruise because you've talked a lot about him recently, but I do need to ask you about um, that film, Top Gun Maverick. I mean, yeah. fucking hell, what a brilliant piece of work. I just think everyone was stunned by how good it was. Did you know, because of your connections to the creative people involved and to Tom, that it was going to be that great? And do you think it's that great? <laughs> I knew that they took, I, I knew that they'd taken a long time to get it right. You know, it, uh, I mean, in lots and lots of ways. I actually, I saw it at the end of 2020. And it's been ready to go since then. And I think the game they played in holding it back was they played it a blinder with that. You know, it was, it was, they held their nerve. It was their, you know, wait until you, the whites of their eyes kind of thing. And they dropped it at exactly the right time post COVID. You know, obviously COVID was the big factor. But I, um, on Friday, because my daughter, she's 12, she hadn't seen uh, the first one. 
So we we watched Top Gun 86 on Friday and then we went to the cinema and we watched Top Gun Maverick on the Saturday. So she saw, wow. I mean, what a wonderful thing yeah. to see a, oh. a sequel, a 30-year-old, a 30-year-later sequel the day after. Yeah. And it is great. It's really good because it, I feel like as, a, as one of those legacy sequels, and we've seen a lot of them recently, it doesn't lean too hard on its predecessor. It actually... It's its own thing, and it, 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 it feels to me like, as a film, it's as mature as Tom is compared to how mature he was when he did the first one. You know, it's a grown-up movie, and it, it, it really, for me, it's a kind of, you know, it's a metaphor, and, and I, I don't think this is entirely um, unintentional. I think it's actually kind of what they were going for, but it, it, there's a parallel there between Tom and maverick as kind of relics from another era you know mm. from the kind of the era of the of of the don simpson uh, jerry bruckheimer film you know the kind of movie star in the in the sense that we grew we grew up understanding and now he's kind of a bit of a a bit out of place these days because there aren't people like him anymore he's like the last one yeah. and i think it was almost a little kind of a little play on his supposed obsolescence, you know, which was really interesting and, and brave. But yeah, it's a great movie. We loved it the other night. Oh, Good Second time, I realized how much um, uh, Lorne Balfe, who's the composer, had just sprinkled in Danger Zone um, to the score. Yeah, like, it was so clever the way that. Yeah, oh, the score melody. is phenomenal. Yeah, 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 brilliant. And finally, I assume you're in the middle of Mission Impossible films. I, my, fi my vision of you is you're always in the middle of a Mission Impossible film, one way or another. That's what it feels like, Boyd, to be honest. I. Uh, yeah, because we're doing two back to back, so right. we're, we've we've um, sort of finished seven now. A few little bits and bobs, inevit as inevitably you would do, sort of reshoots, and that that will that will probably cross over with starting eight. But um, yeah, when you two films back to back is a, is a big deal, and then trying to make the first one during a pandemic um, came with its own challenges. But but what we've got so far, I mean, the trailer the trailer runs with Top Gun Maverick, and it's. You know, it's they're going to be amazing, and 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 the the level of sort of of peril. Every time we do one, I get asked what's going to happen now, and I, go, I yeah. can't possibly think what we'll do. But they've done it; they pushed it further, and they pushed it further again for eight. So, I think people will be delighted when they finally see it next year. <laughs> the, I can't wait. The trailer is phenomenal. But the last one, the last Mission Impossible film, was the best yet by far, and was like. I thought it was the best film of that year. Just, just generally, it was an, it's an astonishing film. Yeah, so, you know. I, I was. I'm thrilled, and it's it's amazing to be part of something which seems to defy the the law of diminishing returns. You know, it kind of they they, and that's very a lot to do with with Chris McQuarrie's collaboration with Tom, and you know they're 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 so in tune those two, and it's um, yeah, I I can't wait for I just can't wait for it to come out so we can you know I stop bet. making it. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. Um, thanks so much, Simon, um, and congratulations on Undeclared, the Undeclared Wars. It's, it's really, really good. Yeah, so interesting. Thanks, boys. It's nice to see you. Right. It is time for news, and I think we should begin news with something that dropped in between recording and editing last week, but I couldn't be bothered to drop it in, which is, of course, news that yet another Game of Thrones spin-off has been announced. However, it is a direct sequel. It is a Jon Snow series that will star Kit Harrington and pick up after the events of the Game of Thrones series, where, spoiler, he goes beyond the wall and is hanging out with the wildlings. Um, what? How are we feeling, guys? What do we think about this? I mean, there are other 
like consider like a considerable number of other people char- like characters in Game of Thrones I would like to see get a sequel. Arya. Over Jon Snow. Arya being one. Other names escaping me right now. <laughs> but it's not Jon Snow. I mean, I I don't know. He's just a bit drippy, isn't he? I would just rather it be with some like someone with a bit of gumption. Actually give one of the kind of secondary characters something to work with. Um and maybe it's a nice opportunity to kind of right the wrongs of the final season. I don't know. I'm not I'll watch it. I'm not thrilled. I'm not That's good of you. Dis- <laughs> I'm not like gutted, but I'm also like, I'm just quite middle line about it is what I'm saying. Do you think it will be like a knockabout sort of like odd couple comedy with him and Tormund Giantsbane like in the Frostfangs or something? I hope so. I do hope so. <laughs> you mean like the um, other way around to that trailer that you sent me, that false fake trailer you sent me this week with Frasier, which is Frasier oh, as this yes. high drama thriller <laughs> thing. Um, yeah. It's good though, uh, genre it? switching would be it was brilliant it was absolutely fantastic i like the idea of a game of thrones comedy starring john snow because it would be more interesting than a lot of uh, john snow's storylines were perhaps in the I original like john snow. This, i don't mind him i like him as well but um has this actually been officially confirmed i don't think so has it like i don't think I apparently, I'm, it. I'm literally looking it up now and amelia clark has okay. confirmed it as well not that she's in it oh, but she? she's like, oh, told, okay. told her about it and it's been created by kit from what she says. Wow. I didn't wow. know. If, any, if you saw, this won't come as a surprise uh, to, to those of us who watched the feature-length documentary about Game of Thrones. So they aired, did you watch it? I did. But it showed how into it Kit Harrington was, didn't it? Like Kit Harrington, I think of all the cast, was so into that show and into his role. And he was like, you know, giving speeches about it and, you know, kind of crying. And he was like full on... I think it's, I just feel his investment in that whole thing was mm. on another level. Do you know what I mean? So that's why this news didn't surprise me because I think you have all the people, of all the cast who would want to carry on with this story, he is the one who would really, really like it. And I think so it doesn't surprise me mm. at all. And it will be, yeah. It'll be, I'll, of course I'll watch it, yeah. Very good. Yes. Now, I, I'm excited to see it, but only because like, I just want to go back into that world. You know, it'll save me from doing another rewatch. This is a good thing. So I can see what John's getting up to, you know back out in the the lands of always winter or whatever it is uh yeah be good so john snow <laughs> an untitled john snow project which is currently in the works what else has been announced in the last week people oh hack season three which i'm obviously guest for very excited yeah. about that i want to mention the paramount plus launch that i went to on oh, monday yeah because they didn't really they didn't so much announce anything brand new they did, but they showed a lot of clips and a lot of i mean they had they brought over this thing honestly this launch I mean, Beth and I discussed whether we were going or not, and Beth was busy, and I thought, oh, I'll, I'll pop along, you know. I mean, I, I, I'm like James, I love a party, but um, this was well, yes. one of the most lavish, yeah, one of the most lavish thing, like media events I've ever attended. And the people they brought over, like, you know, Kevin Costner, Sylvester Stallone, who I may or may not have interviewed for this podcast, wait till, wait till later, a few months' time. Um, Everyone from The Man Who Fell to Earth, um, they brought on, right, for the First Lady, Viola Davis, Michelle Pfeiffer, Michelle Hmm. Pfeiffer, actual Hollywood legend Michelle Pfeiffer, and Gillian Anderson, they strode onto the stage to talk about The First Lady on Paramount Plus. And I'm not kidding you, Gillian Anderson read the autocue or whatever, made a 
perfectly eloquent you know introduction to how pleased she was with it and how pleased she was to be on Paramount Plus and to, on, to be on um, Paramount Plus. They showed a clip and then they walked off. Viola Davis and Michelle Pfeiffer did not say a word. Oh <laughs> they literally God. stood wow. there listening to Anderson <laughs> and then walked off. Oh my and I was God. like, hold on. And I don't even know. I don't even know if they did any press. I don't even know. I mean, if they did, we weren't invited to, to it. But subsequently, you know, the next day or whatever, it was extraordinary. It was like, hold on. You brought these people over to, with, with, you know, hundreds of press in this lavish location in, in Denmark Street in town. It was just weird. It was really weird. But what I was going to say, they did show the trailer for Tulsa King, which is the show that Sliced Alone is in and that, mm. for which I may well have interviewed him before this podcast. And it looks fucking great. I have to say, it, it genuinely yeah. looks excellent. And he is so excited about it. So he, what, so obviously all these stars they brought on, Kevin Costner, et cetera, as I mentioned, um, Chuet Ledger for all these brilliant people, huge superstars. They all wrote, read, 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 wrote off, you know, an auto cue effectively. And it was quite obvious they were doing so because they were looking in one direction at this point where, where their words were. Um, Sylvester Stallone comes on. He's like, no, I'm not using that. I'm not using the autocue. I'm not. I'm just going to say what I think. And he he, he holds <laughs> forth. For, I'm not kidding you. Ten, maybe twenty minutes. Fantastic. About he touched on the Expendables. He touched <laughs> on the Rocky franchise. He touched on all the franchises he's been involved with throughout history, and how he's still dabbling in some of them now and thinking about you know another another you know all these things. And he went, but none of them are anything anywhere near as good as this thing, as Tulsa King, this thing that he's going to be in that does look absolutely fantastic, where he plays a New York, an ex, a kind of New York gangster figure who comes out of jail and is sent by his um, superiors, by his family, if you like, his mafia family, to Tulsa, Oklahoma, to sort stuff out there. And it just looks funny. It looks Taylor Sheridan. It's a Taylor Sheridan creation, so it looks great. The dialogue looks great from the from the thing. And he is clearly absolutely fucking thrilled by the whole thing. Exciting. No, I wish I could have gone to yeah. that, actually. I couldn't make it, but I would have liked to have, uh, frankly, eaten their canapes, and that would have been nice. Did they have good canapes? <laughs> yeah. What were the snacks like, Boyd? Let's be honest. That's the thing that we care about. Um, do you know what? This is absolutely true, right? I, I, I left as soon as the main presentation finished because I had to go home and read a book because I had to review a book for Heat magazine, and I, and I just couldn't stay in it. How, how professional is that? I snubbed that, the camera. That is professional. And he shoved some crap in your pocket for home, boys. 100%, yeah. Oh, I yeah. know, I know. I should have done. But I was, yeah, oh, it was, yeah. I mean, it was absolutely fucking lavish. Let's put it that way. Oof. Yeah. Very good. Uh, what else is happening in the world? So Snowpiercer is now ending after season four, which, I have to be honest, that's probably for the best. Uh, I stopped watching at the beginning of season three because I did not like it anymore, so I am not Same. that interested in that. I would, of course, moan about this and say, well, you know, at least I got four seasons, the OA didn't even get three. But, of course, this is a TNT acquisition, so it's not entirely Netflix's fault. Um, so, anything else been going on? It seems to have been a quite a light week, news-wise, unless I'm going mad, because I'm looking through it and I can't see anything particularly exciting. Uh, we got first look at the Orcs after, after slagging off Lord of the rings so fruitfully we, we got a first look at the orcs and they we don't did. look bad do they they look pretty scary they look a lot like orcs yeah that they do yes yeah no that's right they did release the first pick of the orcs from uh the lord of the rings the rings of power and they look as orky as you might hope they would do so that was quite good we also saw dragons there was a, a poster release for uh game of thrones house of the dragon which has a big old dragon on it you see what they did there uh so that's nice it's a good poster i quite liked it. it's quite effective i'm very much looking forward to that show it looks fantastic uh so yeah we're spoiled for fantasy at the moment i think 
Yeah. Uh, you'll be thrilled about that, Beth. Um, oh, absolutely. I'm interested in the casting news for um, The Crown. Um, Amir El Masri, who is a very good young actor, um, you may recognise from um, various things that he's been in. He was in Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Military Chief. He was in uh, indie drama Limbo, which was really good, if anyone saw that, um, about a Syrian asylum seeker on a Scottish island. Um, and he was in The Night Manager. Anyway, I think you will recognise him. He has been cast as Dodie Al Fayed in um, the next series of The Crown. And I'm just fascinated by the fact that they are going to dramatise the relationship between Dodie Al Fayed and Mohammed Al Fayed and Princess Diana and deal with all of that grapple, with all of that material, basically, because that is a fascinating period in the history of uh, the royal family and of Diana and all of that. And the Queen, as I'm sure James is aware. Brilliant. Risky, um, Risky, who never, ever jumps up when I'm doing recordings, feels the very urgent need to interject to this right now. Uh, she has very strong feelings about the monarchy. Yeah. When I interviewed Sarah Phelps on Zoom fairly recently, she had two dogs. She had a double dog situation. She had like one dog on her lap and another dog running around. It was quite exciting to uh, to deal with all that. And the other story I was going to mention is that um, Variety reported that Apple TV Plus and Disney Plus have made huge gains in the UK streaming market, which is interesting because I think particularly with the Apple TV Plus news, because we have banged on quite a lot here, and I'm sure we'll carry on banging on about how Apple TV Plus's originals are really, really good, and their record at the moment is phenomenal. And it wor- it's working. So they're up 27% in their subscriptions um, to British homes. It's still a relatively small number, but that is a big to go up twenty seven percent in one quarter feels like a big a big uh, deal. Disney Plus is also doing pretty well, and you won't be surprised to hear that Netflix and Prime Video and Sky's Now TV are 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 gaining, but in much smaller to much smaller percent. Their growth is much smaller; it's more like six percent, etc. As people have to decide between which of these services they pay for, and I got a lot, I got a few messages about Paramount Plus. Some people saying there's not enough stuff for me to spend money on it. There's others saying it looks pretty good. You do get it free with Sky Cinema. If you've got a Sky Cinema subscription, you do get Paramount Plus free, I, I would I would mention, as well as... Oh, that's you, right, yeah, because that, they've announced yeah. that, didn't they? That actually, if you have Sky yeah. Cinema, yes, it's it's at no extra charge. And it's worth mentioning, we did, uh, we've did. we just done a big old um, online story, haven't we, of all, yes. the, all the great Apple TV Plus. Just doing James's job for him, to be honest. Done a wonderful, expansive online story yeah. about all the yeah. great which originals on Apple to. TV Plus, yeah. which I contributed to as well. Yeah, wrote yeah. about Mickey Quest, wrote yeah. about Ted Lasso. Meanwhile, James is doing his emails. He's doing his emails, but you know, I'm sure he'll, he'll remember well. these I was responding of... to an urgent <laughs> message. Uh, okay. Also, yes, all the things on Apple TV Plus that are not as good as C and yet are good in their own right. Yes, that was the name. That was the working title of that feature. Well, let's hope it was only the working title. <laughs> uh, <yeah. laughs> you know C is the greatest thing on television. You just don't want to admit it. Uh, yeah. um, is there anything else in the news section? Or no. should we just move on to our cavalcade of reviews this week? Fine, let's do that then. Uh, there's quite a bit happening. Let's begin, I think, with Queer as Folk. So this is the latest attempt to Americanize Russell T. Davis' iconic drama about queer life in Manchester. Uh, and the new Queer as Folk swaps mank life for New Orleans and starts with the first episode, which I have to say does not mess about at all. Oh, Who wants to jump <laughs> on this one? Boydie. Yes. So this is interestingly the second 
American reboot, reimagining, remake, whatever you want to call it, of Queer as mm. Folk. There was one uh, in the 2000s, and it went on for years, actually. It went on for five seasons, I think. Pretty, pretty big hit on Showtime and uh, did really well. Um, this is a whole different ball game in the sense that so what I would say so it's first of all it's show run by Stephen Dunn who made the um, pretty good film um, Closet Monster which came out a few years ago very good indie drama um, and what they've done with this one is they've taken they've kind of where is the, the the previous American version you watch that first episode and, you, and it was pretty closely mirroring the first episode of the original Queer as Folk back in 1999 Russell T Davis's version um, with the rimming scene and everything um, and this one, it takes it. You kind of almost have to extricate how exactly, apart from being about a group of gay men in one locale, um, and there's a nightclub, and they all go to the same kind of nightclub. Um, you kind of you then there's also um, a couple, two two women, two females who are have a baby, which they use the sperm from one of the male characters. So that is that was a storyline in the original Curious Folk. There's also, and there's three, there's a kind of core group of three characters, but it, it quite subtly plays out. So you don't almost even notice that there's this core group of three characters who are clearly loosely based on the core group of three characters in the original Russell T. Davis series. So it's quite clever from that point of view. Halfway through the first episode, I was thinking, you know, these, like, they, like Stephen Dunn could have just created his own drama about a group of LGBTQ plus people in a location and didn't have to call it Chris Folk and I'm sure he would have got away with it and I would have battered an eyelid. But actually, I think this is brilliant that he's taken the inspiration and the tone to some extent and those key situations and used them and updated them. And it feels incredibly up to date in terms of what it's saying about gender um, and sexuality, etc. Um, and trans, particularly the tra trans people, um, and all of that, and it's it feels very that it's got its finger on the nub of particularly what's going on in with younger people really and sexualizing all of that. So that's 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 what makes it really kind of relevant, I think, and and good. And the timing feels really good that it's coming up with this series now. The big thing that happens in this first episode is halfway through or, or more than up two thirds of the way through suddenly a huge thing an event takes place a violent event is all i'd say i mean i don't know why i'm being around the bush because you know it's kind of the premise of the whole series in a way but a huge it's in the trailer it's in the trailer yeah. thank you beth in that case yeah. i mean it's a basically there's a shooting at this nightclub reminiscent of the real shooting of course the mass shooting that happened at the pulse nightclub in america and it kind of uses that as the starting point to explore grief and, um, you know, the, the political and social reaction to such an event where, you know, a shooting at a, a gay club particularly. Um, but it has been controversial, particularly in so this whole series, I think, has already aired in America. And yeah. I've definitely seen articles of people questioning whether the programme makers have the right to use such a fairly recent raw event, tragic event that's affected so many people. And I do believe the makers of this show have... Um, got help and guidance and advice from the real relatives and friends of victims of that of that pulse shooting. So that's so you know I, I think I'll leave it up to to viewers to decide. I don't have a problem with it. I think it's creatively justified because these things do happen. Of course, with recent shootings that have happened, you know, in schools, etc. The whole issue of gun violence, any drama that deals with the issue of gun violence, for me, 
has to be a good thing. And there's no way of dealing with gun violence in these things without referring or, or, or having parallels to the real examples of it, because there's so many fucking examples of it. Every single day in America, every week, there's one of these mass shootings. It's absolutely horrendous. And so as well as being a very timely look at what it's like for an LGBTQ plus community now, it's also a very timely look at that topic and that issue and has it and the real world effect, I mean, in, within a drama of how dealing with the grief of not have not only your loved ones being dying but being killed by someone in this particular way so I actually I got to the end of this episode I was kind of stunned and impressed it's a bit messy in terms of some of the directing and some of the performances are better than others it's not perfect by any means but good on it for giving it a fucking good go and um, and the very first scene is a quite vivid sex scene. So if you're, <laughs> yes. you know, if you if you if you can't take the ex- explicit in quote sex scene, and in the end they do have a rimming scene in tribute to the fact that in that opening episode of Rusty Davis's Cribbers Folk, it changed the world <laughs> by introducing that sex act to television, and yep. never look back. And it does have a, a so it, in all kinds of different ways it pays tribute to the original in quite a clever, I think, and well thought through way. Yeah. I think, for me, it, I started to go easier on it when I started to see it. And I don't mean this in a detrimental way at all, but when I started to see it as more of a soap than like a hard-hitting American drama about queer people. So I found it to be quite melodramatic, which I in places certainly and bolstered by some of the performances that you mentioned boy they are varying um at best and it's it's wonderful to see such a melange of of identities and uh some of it is you know it was great for example when there's there's the moment where a, a baby is being held over like have passed over to the parent and saying oh you've got a, a boy and a girl and the parent says you know that's to be decided you know things like that I think were really interesting to see in a in a very modern um society but I did struggle with a melodramatic framing of a club shooting I, I feel it's a tough thing for me to pass judgment on because obviously we don't even begin to deal with gun violence on a scale that they do in America, certainly as as a minority. Um, but I did find it a little, to begin with, a little insensitive. Some of the framing, some of the almost like Instagrammable shots that followed um, the event that happened. Um, and some of it, I'm sorry, it just felt a little bit almost like fan fiction in the way it was handled in some of the relationships. But I think when, yeah, when I did start to kind of reframe it as as a bit more, I did some reading around the show as well. And, and a few places have described it actually as a soap. And I think actually when I when I reframed it like that, which is not to, to say that I found it silly or, you know, light at all, but just to kind of reframe it in through that lens, it made me a bit happier to get on to get on board with it but I, I thought some of the performances were amazing absolutely it's bright it's fun in some places as well it obviously balances you know there are moments of joy that follow the the shooting so it's not this kind of plummet into darkness um it shows the strength of that community in a really great way um but yeah i do i do just have to take a step back and kind of see it for what it is in that respect 
I think all, all of that is true. I think it is quite soapy. That said, I will say that. So when I read the synopsis for this, I read that it was the aftermath of a shooting. And obviously it has a warning at the beginning, I seem to recall. Mm, it does. Uh, and... I think it kind of speak what what kind of stood out to me is that by the time the shooting happens I'd forgotten the shooting was coming because I got quite involved in the character dynamics and their relationship and who was fucking whom and everything it just became like I just, I got quite swept up in it so much so that when that moment came I'd forgotten it was coming and it really wrong footed me I was like oh my god like oh my mm. god um so I think that's, I mean, that's a good thing I'm saying. You know, I, I really like that. I thought they were interestingly drawn. I mean, as you say, it's not it's not hard-hitting drama, but I think the fact that, I think Russell T. Davis has gone on the record saying that he approves of this version of the show. Uh, yeah. I think I'm right in saying that, Boyd, aren't yeah. I? Yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah. You know, I think that, that's, that speaks to the fact that it is doing something, I think, slightly different from his show. But it also it's a different time from when his show, you know, was on TV. Um, and I think what it does... It does very well. It's just, you know, uh, a question of, you know, if you're looking for something that is slightly more sort of like hard hitting in terms of dramatic, then you may not find it here. And yes, bringing that sort of soapy feel to something that has this kind of rather upsetting, graphic, traumatic subject matter might not be everyone's cup of tea. But uh, I pretty, I, I, I enjoyed it. But I think the casting is so brilliantly inclusive. Like there's a, what Ryan O'Connell's in, who people might recognise from his own series special on Netflix, who um, is disabled. He has cerebral palsy and he is fantastic in it. He plays the main character, Brody's brother, and their relationship is fascinating. Um, and um, he, he's fantastic. And the other actor I would mention is Finn Argus, who plays Mingus, the, who's the non-binary teen, who's an aspiring drag queen, is fantastic as well. And they yeah. have this scene, or the big kind of debut, drag debut, during the whole shooting incident, which gives it, which, which I think just makes it even more poignant. But Finn Argus is particularly, I think, I, I think uh, does brilliantly in that role. And that's the role that's similar to Charlie Hunnam's, because yeah. um, that character holds a light for the kind of big, kind of sex god of the of the series if you like in the same way that charlie hunnam was obsessed um with aiden gillen's character in the original queerest folk yeah also um, i did not go into this expecting to see uh, a mimed drag yes, act based yes. on the craft so but amazing. i was very very pleased yes. to see it there because yes. it was damn cool <laughs> damn cool and kim Cattrall's in it we should mention. Um, yes, Juliet Lewis. Mm. Juliet Lewis. And Kim Cattrall's, I think, terrible Southern accent, let me say, but I think um, <laughs> she's still great to see her. She has a great, a whale of a time playing the mother of two gay guys. Um, and Juliet Lewis as well. Yes, fantastic. Popping up. And then Begley Jr. is the kind of brilliantly, just ludicrously useless dad as well. So <laughs> it has those treats, those casting treats as well. It does, indeed. Curious Folk then, which is on Star's Play starting on the 1st of June. July. Next up, we have the return of Donald Glover's Atlanta. And honestly, it feels like a decade or so since we last saw season two. And also, it feels like nearly as long since this aired in the US. But, but, despite all that, it is here now. Uh, although the first episode does its level best to make you wonder if you've accidentally changed the channel. Uh, Beth, what is going on? Because I was very confused. <laughs> Beth, explain. Please explain. Uh, this must yeah. be what you have when you come into like season seven of like Raised by Wolves or something. But I, yeah. We're not going to get one of those Crimea River. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so it does feel like 10 years. It it has been a long road to production, not least because all of those breakout stars that aren't Donald Glover have gone on to be Marvel superheroes, like action stars. Lakeith Stanfield's doing loads of stuff now. They've all massively taken off. So I imagine their very busy schedules are now 
having to be accounted for because they've shot season three or four back to back, didn't they? Um, across Europe. Funnily enough, they shot some episodes not too far from my house, which is quite funny. Um, I like the idea of Brian Tyree Henry popping into uh, Nando's in Dalston. Um, but yes, yeah, so it took them a long time for whatever reason. It's taken months more to get here. So yeah, I was also astonished as just a little bit pissed off of the arrogance behind opening a third season with these like incredible, lucrative, engaging, fascinating actors. And he decides to go with a bottle episode, um, which does not show anybody. Oh, it shows Donald Glover at the end. Yeah, very yeah, briefly. I don't, that's, yeah. that's yeah, right at the not end, even yeah. really a spoiler, it's a set. But no, it goes down this sort of capsule fable type um, bottle episode. Um, about a kid who gets taken into a foster home run by two white women. Um, so I, wa- I watched that one. That one bewildered me. I think it's supposed to. Be, it is supposed to be provocative that he's gone and consciously not given people, given fans what they want from a first episode. It's very much very sharp reminder that Donald Glover is in control and in charge of this show and will give you whatever he pleases basically and most of the time I'm very on board for that and you kind of know what he's about at this stage I think the needle just pushed a bit too far into pretentious for me for the first one which pains me to say you know you know how much I love Atlanta I really I love the first two seasons especially but this just it felt like a false start to me um and then I watched the second episode because I sort of felt like I had to to get an idea of actually what this season's going to be about because it's a nightmare to review as well if you are actually trying to come in and watch it Mm -hmm. um and you've only got this one very far removed very jarring kind of story yeah about this this kid um who's basically sort of abused um in sort of metaphorical ways and then very literal ways uh in this foster care home um so that's the first one. And then we, we're sort of rejoined with Brian Tyree Henry, who's Paperboy, who's on a European tour with Darius, who's Lakeith Stanfield, um, and Donald Glover. And then Van, who is Lazy Beats, uh, who's just tagged it on for the ride. She, to be honest, has some of the most interesting stuff to do with this season. She's sort of just kind of on one and doing whatever she feels like and being quite reckless and fun. And I'm glad to see her breaking out and getting her own stuff to do because she was just, she's a wonderful performer. I love her, but she was basically the beleaguered ex of Donald Glover's character and, and this like hardworking mom. So it's nice to see her kind of break out and have some weird, interesting things to do. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, it's beautifully made. Like one of the most beautifully shot shows I think out there um and I'm so happy to see those performers back I'm just I'm not sold yet and part of it is because of this very conscious pretty pretentious decision to kick off with this ball episode but also it just it feels like it's struggling to find its rhythm it's like they've pulled all these people back in but they don't quite know what to do with them yet um so yeah it's a shame I obviously wanted to go and loving it I was like so excited to watch this again and it, it it's just dulls a little bit for me sadly yeah it's interesting because i watched this first episode ages ago to be honest and um because it got my a friend of mine lives in new york my friend uh told me about it and um who's a big fan of the show and i had to see it and it is i think this episode is a, a, a phenomenal half hour of 
TV, right? It completely. So separate from the issue of the fact, yes, it's opens with an episode. But so there are four episodes in this season of 10 that are just, as you call them, bottle episodes that are separate entities from the main narrative and do not feature, apart from very, in a very minor way, any of the main characters. Four out of I 10. hate to be that guy. Who am I kidding? Yeah. I 100% that, but that's not technically what a bottle episode is. Right, bottle well, episode is a cheap episode, normally right. set in one place, which normally uses a few random cast members. I think the only qualifying characteristic is it needs to cost less than the rest right. of them. Though the fact that it doesn't have all the A-listers in probably does qualify as a bottle episode. But yeah, it's less about separating it from the main I narrative. I knew what you were talking about. You knew right. what I was talking <laughs> right. about. Exactly. So let's just exactly. carry on, yeah. shall yeah. we? I'm yeah. ignoring him. Yeah. I'm ignoring him. <laughs> <laughs> not there. I mean, you do anyway. It's <laughs> <laughs> there are four such now I, I've read there's a big interview with uh, Stephen Glover Donald's brother who works on the show he's one of the writers of the show and he talks about how they called them stepping step out episodes where they step away step out from the core cast right and the core storyline they also refer to them because people have said how much they like Black Mirror episodes because they're all fucking horrific let me say this so this I'm 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 um, I'm uh, witchering on, but incoherently. But what I love about this first episode, it is. I thought it was horrific, and I thought as a portrayal of white savior complex, and it's based on a true story. But if you know that, there's an actual story of the Hart family murders, where two women did drive their car off um, in, into a river with their six black adopted kids, and they all died in this incident um, a few years ago, 2018. So it's based on that real, real horrific incident. And I thought it was an absolutely brilliantly achieved um, half hour of chilling, terrifying, and yet somehow funny, I mean, you know, in the darkest, darkest possible way, brilliantly acted. I thought the, the kid, the young kid at the centre of it is, in, is phenomenal. Um, so I watched the episode ages ago and it stayed with me, you know, and I knew when we were coming to review it, it would be an interesting, uh, thorny way because it is so weird that they go straight in with this unique separate storyline and the way they, fr- I mean, not only is that the main storyline of the kid being adopted by these two women in this horrific abuse and neglect that happens and their ridiculous hippie kind of twisted hippiedom gone mad, which is just, everything about it is fascinating to me, but that's also framed by two guys on a boat. First of all, in the present day, just chatting about racism and white and versus black, you know, identity. So it's framed by that. And then it's doubly framed at the end by suddenly the appearance of uh, Donald Glover's character as if it's all been his dream. It's just an it's bold. I've got to use the word. It's bold. <laughs> it's the boldest of the bold. And you then get three more, as I say, three more special step out episodes, which you do not feature the main cast so there's no you never get more than two episodes in a row that do stick with the main narrative and the main cast it's extraordinary um then episode two which is the the as you say set them in europe and they're all kind of being i think the big theme of this whole series is alienation this particular season whether you're black people alienated from their own friends from themselves like i think you know I, i think the main character um, is, is already spoiled and kind of demanding and stardom. He's now f- much more famous than he was at the end of the previous season. And, you know, he's wandering around demanding 20000 in cash for this. And he's having threesomes in his bed with two women and all of, all, Unrealistic all of that. Unrealistic threesomes? Um, I, I think a bit, actually, yeah. I wasn't entirely convinced by that threesome. I have to say, but it is out there. I admire the audacity of this show. It's the most audacious of all of the shows that, you know, all of these half hour comedy, ostensible comedies, right, that are created by maverick 
creative figures like Donald Glover. Dave, I guess, is the other one I'm thinking of. And, um, you know, there's a few of them that are about, usually, let's face it, men, kind of flawed, egomaniacal men, right? There's a whole, it's a whole genre to itself in a way. But I think this is the one that is so out there and maverick that I love it. And we should mention that episode nine of the 10 is the one where famously um, Liam Neeson, who's got very busy with cameos at the moment. Liam Neeson is doing a lot of fucking TV cameos, right? <laughs> this is the maddest of them all, though, because yeah. he appears in episode nine of this season in a bar, and he explains that extraordinary incident where he, in a, in a junk, in a press junket, told the story of how a friend of his was sexually assaulted and he wanted to avenge that person by killing any black man he could find. And this ridiculous, incredible thing that he said, and he comes on and he, and I've seen the bit, right, from that episode again, I couldn't wait, I had to watch this bit, yeah. <laughs> uh, where he's given the chance almost to explain himself by yeah. this show. It's fascinating. I, I, I have to credit, again, the audacity. It is flawed. I, I know what you mean, about you know you just want you, I, I can't, I, and they try and get away with all kinds of like for example you know um, Zazie beats his character who is the mother of Donald Glover's character's kid that she joins them on this European tour what's happening for the fucking kid nothing gives <laughs> you know what I mean yeah and that's <laughs> almost like they're going we're so maverick that you know we don't care we don't we're not like normal shows we don't have to, have to explain that kind of detail well. I think you kind of do, really. You kind of do, um, yeah. So, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, it's not, it is flawed, it, but I have to applaud the absolute creative insanity of it. Uh, yeah. I watched the whole first season of Atlanta and enjoyed it a lot. I never watched season two. And after this first episode of season three, I will not be going back to it, I don't think. Like, it was so pretentious. It really rubbed me up the wrong way. I was like, you don't start your third season with this shit. Like, who the what is going on? <laughs> Genuinely, I had to check to make sure I'd not clicked on the wrong screen. I was yeah. like, what is this show? It's like, remember that time when Terry watched, <laughs> watched yes. that? And she watched that. It was, it was, it was, it was, um, it was What oh. If, the Netflix What If with yes. Renny Zellweger. And yeah. she watched some sort of show in Arabic and didn't realize it was the wrong show. I had that. I was like, I'm watching the wrong show. This is not mm. Atlanta. Where is Paperboy? I'm very confused. And, and that, that bugged me. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Donald, you've lost me. Uh, no, I mean, I, uh, season one was fantastic, so I may well go back to this at some point, but I think we've established that I won't because I have other things to watch. Anyway, uh, Atlanta comes <laughs> to on Disney Plus from the 29th of June. Next, we have The Undeclared War, which has Simon Pegg trying his hand at, you know, a little bit of light hacking and espionage in our next show. Uh, uh, as part of a team of analysts working at GCHQ, doing their level best to ward off a foreign attempt to steal an election and subvert our democracy, which doesn't strike close to home at all. One thing I want to say before you guys talk about the show is I reviewed Michael Mann's film Black Hat way back in the day. Oh, yeah. And my biggest concern, my biggest criticism of Black Hat is watching people type at keyboards is just tedious. What you be like hacking is the least exciting mm. thing in the world because it's just nerds typing lines of code into a screen. And you know, Michael Mann did things where like the camera would go inside the computer and it would follow wires through the machine. You see like lights going through the machinery and out the other end, zooming down the information superhighway. Like, he tr he, bless him. He did his level best to make it look visually interesting and failed. Whereas this show tries something completely different and I think succeeds. But do yes. tell us about this one, Boyd. Yes, I agree. Well, the opening scene of this um, six-part drama, which is written and directed and created by um, Peter Kosminski, who did, I think his last thing was The State, which is also a Channel 4 series, a very, very daring Channel 4 series about British Muslims going to fight for ISIS 
um, and was an extraordinary series, really. And this is also extraordinary. But you're, but it begins. The very first scene is this young um, GCHQ applicant. She's trying to get the, a rare internship at GCHQ, the British intelligence operation. Um, she's called Sarah. She's played by Hannah Kalik Brown. And we're watching her kind of. It's almost like a kind of Indiana Jones adventure in a way. Like she has to negotiate weird buildings and doors and unlock. Um, codes and this, that, and the other, all visualized dramatically. It turns out because it, at the first, you're like, "What the fuck is going on with this thing?" These, the, it doesn't make sense from us. The ge- geography of what she's going through in this task, this doesn't make any sense. Then you realize this is a visualization and a dramatization of her trying to solve this coding mystery and getting to the bottom of a bit of malware. I'm using these phrases like I know what the fuck they mean. I don't. Um, and, <laughs> and, um, and it works really well. It's really clever. Kudos to Kosminski. Were I you think, confused right. at the beginning, though? Yeah, I was. You absolutely. When they first did it, I was like, I, yeah. I don't understand what's happening. No. She's just dumped in the sea. She's come out. She's yeah. completely dry. Right. And then this right. thing just came down from the scene. It was really surreal. And then you're like, oh, I see what they've done. Yes. It's, yeah, exactly. It's really clever. And I yeah. think it, 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 it keeps on being really clever. So it's really, it's an exploration of the absolute horrific extreme of, we're so reliant on the internet, is what it's reminding us in terms of air traffic control for a start, of, you know, all transport, you know, all te- timetables of trains and tubes, I mean, this week of strikes, etc. Um, of retail, of banking, etc. Everything is run on the internet. And what this drama is reminding us is if some fucking Russian bot farm decides they really want to step things up a bit and plant some malware <laughs> in, and and basically ruin society, they can. They pretty much can. And it's quite apocalyptic in that sense. Um, and terrifying. I found it quite the whole thing quite scary. So, but, but what's really clever about the series, I think, is that it's told mostly from the point of view of this young woman um, who is going through a nightmare situation at home and it's so it's kind of like we we see it through we see it through a young normal person's eyes who she wants to you know she wants to kind of advance herself and again gets this brilliant opportunity and she uncovers you know all these smug patronizing men are like oh yeah she's the you know female in town not taking you seriously i mean it is she does do this on her first day so it's pretty amazing that she finds <laughs> a unique an important bit of code that basically says there's gonna be another huge cyber attack on the whole country and she then becomes a kind of hero instantly her boss is played by simon pegg who i interviewed and but i think it's a real masterstroke to have her as the focus of the show because otherwise it would be full of jargon and full of watching people at their de- computers and all of that even with the visual dramatization that he's come up with yeah. to, sh- to show what the coding all means etc so i think it's really clever it's got a whole kind of um uh it feels very very current he's, it took five years for him to make this show peter kosminski he's researched the shit out of it this is <laughs> basically all of the things that he depicts are things that could have happened, might have happened that we didn't know have happened, or 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 the experts say could well be about to happen. And I find it very chilling and convincing. And Adrian Lester gets to play a prime minister who's ousted Boris Johnson. There's just a little like, throwaway, that touch. which yeah, is brilliant because it's set in 2024. Did yeah, you mention that? 2024. So, I didn't mention and they that. They talk yeah. about historical events like he, yeah. like there was a coup and Boris yeah. was removed from office by Adrian yeah. Lester. <laughs> yeah, which is great. And even that, by the way, was in the original script. He didn't add that at the last minute because of what happened recently. That was just you know he's a very. Uh, 
um, smart guy, Peter Kuzmitsky. But so I, I think it's it's uh, a very like it's not particularly flashily. Apart from that, the visualization of all the computer stuff, I wouldn't say it's it's very it's very tidy and classic in its kind of pacing and visuals. And I admire that. I think it's not trying to be all flashy and gimmicky, etc. But it's really instantly compelling. I think I was I absolutely am gripped already, and I need to know what happens. Like there's there's, a, there's an attention to detail about it that I rather like. Like it revels in the details of things, uh, and I, I thought it was a really interesting look at that world and how it must work. Because you, you know we deal a lot with these sort of things in Cobra meetings. God, there's a whole show called Cobra, but I just like the idea that there are there's this bunch of just nerds at GTHQ <laughs> trying to keep us all from dying because like Russian hackers are trying to bring down the internet and stuff like that, and they're just sitting there bashing away at their little desk doing code. And it's uh, yeah, I I it felt so relatable and real but it wasn't what I was expecting and I don't know whether it was the presence of Simon Pegg but I don't know I started this thinking this is this is there'll be something comedic in this that there's but it's not a comedy show like it's very serious but not in a dour way like it's it takes itself very seriously it's a serious subject matter tonally it's quite downbeat at times like she goes through some personal tragedy and you know it's actually quite you you get into it but you're like oh okay like this is this is like as a mood piece this is a sort of a lower level mood piece this is not a pick-me-up show um but it, it's fascinating absolutely fascinating I found it quite dour. <laughs> oh, you did. The mood piece really got you down, did it? Dour. <laughs> what did you call it? A, a lower mood piece. That is a yeah. new turn of phrase for you, to be honest. <laughs> that's what film <laughs> critics do, isn't it? We just make up fucking stupid phrases, too. But it, you know, it's a lower mood piece. That's you sitting at your little, like they're tapping away at their little computers. That's you yeah. sitting at your little microphone coming up yeah. with filters. A lower mood piece. What, what, Beth's like, you mean it's a bit fucking depressing? <laughs> it's so fucking depressing. <laughs> Oh my god! I won't even obviously won't say what the closing shot is, but it's really sad. <laughs> it's a really sad show. There's like, there's one moment as you say that like the protagonist she like does something really triumphant, heroic, and everyone's like slapping her on the back, and some bellend literally <laughs> in Jackson is like. I think you're is like I think you're fine. <laughs> Shouldn't other people have been doing their jobs? Why are you celebrating? And everyone basically has to uncomfortably sit back down again after standing yeah. up and giving her, you know, a rip roaring round of applause. That's that's what the whole show feels like. Is everyone's like, ah, oh. but like for an hour, <laughs> it's like, ah, oh. oh god, oh cyber war, oh, and then she's got all these. Oh, personal stuff. She's eating a really sad Tesco meal deal sandwich. That was a really, <laughs> even that was a really sad shot. Just, um, oh, God. Oh, You'd have been I'm happier so- if it was Waitrose, wouldn't you? I would have been happier if it mm. was like a homemade bowl of soup, you know, but it was. Uh, chicken and yeah. Oh, chicken and She's got yeah. time Her to make own- soup. It's brought a cheeky night from Dalston. I think that would have been better. But I'm so, I found it really hard to pit myself up and engage with this because it just felt like it got from bad to worse. I thought it was a great role for Simon Pegg. I like seeing him play straight. Yeah. Um, and it's great to see him. I, I like whenever he kind of is off and does something slightly unexpected and that's what he's done here and he does it very well. Is Mark Rylance in this show? Yeah, he's not in the first episode. Yeah, he comes into it later. Right, yeah. I was like, did I miss him? Was he under a no, bad no. wig? He's no, no, not no. In no. It. He hasn't arrived right. yet. Okay. He's not here yet. Yeah, I was. Oh, I just found it really dour, and I, I was just. I could feel my, my like posture going as I was watching it. So just it didn't. <laughs> it just didn't grip me as well. I'm sorry. Your your lower mood piece. 
yeah, yeah it was just, just a yeah. bit too, bit too low uh, it was a bit too see my thing when this finished i was like if i had all six episodes it is six isn't it right uh, yeah. if i had all six episodes i would have watched them all in a row yes yeah, <laughs> i genuinely i was like i was totally yeah. geared up for this whole story by the end of it and i was slightly gutted i had to wait because they only gave me one episode but uh yeah definitely watching the rest of this uh lower mood piece and all uh the undeclared war then which comes to channel four which begins on the 30th of june at 9 p.m Next up, we have the long-awaited return of Westworld, uh, which has been absent from our screens since since 2020. Although, to be fair, there has been two years between every season. Um, Now, you remember season three was notable for two things. It was notable for the fact that the show left the park and turned into a kind of Black Mirror-esque future shock show instead of the sort of Western thing that had been previously. And it was notable for the other thing in that it provoked the ire of one Boyd Hilton, (laughs) who... forged this sort of personal crusade against the show and the season decrying it as the worst thing to ever happen in the realm of men so i suppose my question for you boyd is has season four turned you around is all forgiven or are you still in the trenches on this um i didn't mind it i didn't mind it it was it was i thought it was it was had a clarity and a simplicity i mean believe it or not i mean with it with, with you know it's, everything's relative but in comparison to last <laughs> season i mean last season had this whole idea that you could plant your um consciousness that the the hosts if you like who were the you know the the, the robots effectively the androids yes. the replicants whatever you want to call them could plant their consciousness into another body. And that particularly Evan Rachel Woods, whatever the name fuck she was called by that point, character was planting in all kinds of different bodies as well. Not just one, but myriad. And they're often battling each other and you don't know which side's on which. And there were two Ed Harris's. Which one was the host? Either of them, both of them, fuck knows. It was absolutely bewildering. And there was this supercomputer that could somehow make everyone in the whole world do what the computer wants them to do. Rehoboam. Rehoboam. It was fucking ridiculous. I did not believe a word of it. Yeah, I won't rehearse. So I went, you're right. It really annoyed me because it was just too much. Well, and to be fair, so I will grant you, I actually enjoyed yeah. season three myself. I'm not derailing a thing. I will get back to you. But I would say what, what I think season three is. So season one was all about the mystery and the puzzle unfolding. Season two had more of that. And season one obviously had that dual timeline thing. So it did a proper yeah. rug pull. Season yeah. two had a bit more of that. They also had a rug pull. But I felt like... It was mystery, but they they layered complexity onto it to try and make it seem more interesting. But it worked. Like I enjoyed season two, season three. I felt like the mystery was ejected, and instead of having mystery, they just went for incredibly dense storytelling and 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 so, like such elliptical storytelling, and yeah. and it was so heavily plotty that it was just incredibly hard to follow. Like I say, I really enjoyed it. But it also came out the same week as Devs, which covered much yeah. the same material. Right. So, well, if you, I mean, if you found it hard to follow, then you know, I mean, I, I often, yeah, I, I am an idiot, and I find things. It was <laughs> mystifying, bewildering. But also, the other thing that annoyed me about it as well is that this show started out, you know, the original Westworld film, which I love, by the way. Mm. Um, you know, the whole idea of this is an exploration of the nth degree of of you know amusement parks and the immorality of you know creating an android version of a human and how you treat and all that those are the big themes from the first first season then they kind of turned it last season into this oh we want to talk about the whole future of mankind and the planet and it's just like i think they're a bit delusions of grandeur is is the main problem (laughs) for me about the series now and it's still got that it's still got those delusions of grandeur but there isn't the computer the supercomputer that's somehow controlling the entire planet (laughs) is gone right so yeah. that's a good thing because i thought that plot line was fucking stupid so 
the sim- what seems to be happening in the beginning of this season is that basically someone is wanting to hunt down all of the they set a few it's a it's a time jump right and further into the future yeah. hosts the humans a big are, time jump it's about seven-ish years right that, that thank you yeah and the um the hosts have been got rid of that humanity has survived and but there are still of course rogue hosts around that some different set people are trying to track down and some of the hosts are trying to track down some of the people who are allying with humanity and trying to track down the nasty hosts that are still out there. Mainly Ed Harris is one, I think, um, who's literally kind of trying to destroy American society, <laughs> president upward, president downwards. And that's pretty much kind of like what happens in the first couple of episodes. I watched the first few episodes. Um, I'm trying to, I hope that's not too spoilery. Um, Evan Rachel Wood is playing a different character, or is she? This is like a she's yeah, it's a unclear. writer. It's, like she's it's unclear. Christina, she's, who Christina. writes NPCs for video games, because right. subtext. Right, exactly. Very obvious subtext. And Evan Rachel Wood has always been the best thing about the series, and she's still brilliant, even playing this kind of mysterious person who could be just another iteration, let's face it, of the previous character she's had. Oh, the other MVP for me is um, Ed Harris, because I do find he is a fucking scary villain, and his <laughs> psychopathicness here is a real plus point. The scenes with him in them are electrifying. There's some brilliant, mm. brilliant scenes. And he wasn't really in the last season. He was barely in it no, at all. No, barely in, like, in the last season. Exactly. Yeah, they've, he's really the star of the show back now. I always found Aaron Paul's character a bit oh, blah. He still is a bit blah. He's got a terrible new haircut. Um, <laughs> but he kind of teams up with Tandyway Newton's Maeve, who's back, and Tandyway oh, Newton's was so also good. great. The car. The best so thing good. about the show is how good the, the car. They're all great. All the, those people are all great, except Aaron Paul, who's a bit. I think is a bit weak. <laughs> He's not particularly good. Sorry, Aaron. Um, but um, I, I understood what was going on mostly. I think, and the things that I didn't understand were um, deliberately being withheld. This is another one of those shows, though. And this was true of the first, the very, the big twist in that very first season was one of those ones that relied on them tricking, tricking you, the viewer, with the way they edit the story. Do you know what I mean? It's like I think they're organic twists. Oh, this character turns out to be that thing, and there are slightly, and there are the inorganic ones. And this always felt the twists in Westwood always felt forced to me. You know, it's attempt at creating a puzzle box show, as they call it, constantly coming up with twists and surprises. They all feel like I, I can see your writer's room and they were going, oh, what if we brought him in there in the last scene of the uh, second episode, which they do. Um, you know, I, I can feel it all. They all feel a bit contrived. and It's still got that quality to it. But this at first few episodes of this new season, less so than the last one. So it's definitely an improvement for me. It's got some great individual sequences. I, there's a lovely sequences in episode two maybe where um tandy way newton and uh, aaron paul's characters go somewhere and they don't realize where they're going to end up and that was very cleverly Mm. done as people will know what they when they see it (laughs) no spoilers but i thought that was really clever and um expertly directed and, and and kind of production design particularly so there are some great treats in store i think and and it's making and it is not making me angry as season three did that's good. I'm pleased. I'm pleased. The rage is gone. Yeah, Boyd has finished gone. his crusade against Westworld. Yeah. Uh, I've seen the first half of this season. Uh, I reviewed it for the magazine, and uh, I loved it. I've got to be honest. I really loved it. Like, I was obsessed with it. Like, watching it 
compulsively uh, and was upset when I ran out of episodes. And I do think they've addressed a lot of the problems with the previous one. I think the Ed Harris thing is a big thing because he wasn't in last season. I think having him back, putting him centre stage is a great thing to do. I think having Evan Rachel Wood there, even in a slightly different way, is also a smart decision. But also this has a much clearer narrative through line. Also, it's got some rug pulls in it, some big ones. It wrong foots you a number of times. And again, not through elliptical storytelling but they it does it through you know actual clever plotting and narrative construction which i uh, very much approved of you know there's a there's a whole it's funny so even from the very first episode it lays out a lot of what this season's going to be but the importance of those things are not made clear until it goes along. And I quite like that. I like that idea that the same way with this first season, you go back and rewatch it and you can see it all from the very beginning because it's so obvious, but it was hiding in plain sight. And I think there's a lot of that in this one too. So I think they have kind of looped around. In many ways, they've kind of mixed together the best of both worlds. You've got the park episodes, you've got the... Um, uh, you've got the the future stuff and they've just put them together. Like there is another park in here. I'm not going to spoil any details of it, but there is another one, uh, which is kind of a cool idea. Uh, and there are lots of excellent devices. I, I, yeah, I really, really applauded this kind of... See, I it is a course correction. I didn't hate season three. I liked season three, but I think this is a course correction. So I think season three, whether you liked it or not, was going in a direction that I didn't think was particularly helpful. And I think this, you know, it's easier to understand, but it's not easier to kind of get your head around if that makes sense so the plotting is more consistent and clear there's a clarity to it but it's also clever and it does certainly by the end of the episodes that i saw by the halfway point of this season it drops a bombshell and you're like whoa so yeah i think if people have, have skipped westworld if they've dropped away from it i would say maybe consider going back could you skip the whole of season three and go straight to season four maybe Maybe yeah, go to Wikipedia, read what happened in season three. I would. <laughs> it works oh, for all sorts way, of things. But also, they do quite clunkily um, have references to what happened in season three in the in the in the series. They do, yeah, yes. Which, so you, you kind of get the hang of it. I have a question before Beth gives. Did, did Beth? Did you even watch it? <laughs> No. No. Oh, fine. Yeah, good. I was going to say, I don't think Beth always said. Fair enough. Fair enough. My wife, here's a question for you. It's still one of the best theme tunes and title sequences on TV. And they change the title sequence each season, don't they? Subtly. They do. And this is as beautiful as it's ever been. Mm. And the the theme tune by Ramin Djawadi is fantastic. My question is, is this the only example of a TV series title sequence where you see the notes of the theme tune being played before your very eyes? Oh, well, on the piano. And the piano. Yeah, you do. It's cool. And it's fantastic. Um, but I can't think of any other show where that's happened. If our listeners have uh, have, Yeah, one, I, don't, do I don't there. know is the answer to that. I, I like the way that they layer plot devices. That they that Key plot points are generally given away in the title sequence, but the relevance of them doesn't make right. any sense until you've got yeah. through it. But I like, yeah. I like the way they do that. There are also some more of those excellent covers that they do. They do those kind of slightly slowed down, lazy covers of um, pop songs. Billie Eilish is in there. Metallica turns up at one point, a bunch of others. Uh, you know, because obviously once you're back in a park, you can do more of that stuff than you could do in uh, in season three, which was quite techno-heavy, the soundtrack for uh, season three, as I recall. But anyway, anyway, Westworld then, season four, which returns to our screens on Sky Atlantic and now uh, from the 27th of June at 2am because it goes out uh, day and date with the US and obviously it'll be on the 28th at a normal human time uh, for people to watch that as well. Now, finally this week, we have the return of Only Murders in the Building, which of course sees Martin Short, Steve Martin and Selena Gomez returning as podcasters on a mission much like ourselves. Uh, I haven't watched this and I'm not going to but uh, someone who has, feel free to tell me about it. Why aren't you going to watch it? 
Because I didn't like the first season. You know that. Oh, like, this is, I'm the only person in the world who doesn't like this show. Yeah. I found it quite irritating and I couldn't oh, get on with it. And I know twat. that everyone loves it and I don't know what to tell you. Well, I think it's just me because, again, we had we did have enough Better Busy Woman and uh, probably didn't have time to watch the lot of shows five shows. Week. A lot of shows. Five lot shows. shows to see. Yeah. I love Only Murders in the Building. I fucking loved season one. And there's one word for it for this show, sublime. It is a <laughs> lovely, lovely you are thing. Just pouring out those gems Picking today. Out those I words. love yeah. it. Yeah. Baroque. Yeah. That is a right. high mood Sublime. piece, boy, oh, would you say? It's a, it's stop a, it, ruining it. You ruined everything. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it will cheer you the fuck up. I tell you what, it might not you, but the normal people. It's so pleasurable. And obviously, this is, by the way, a, a, you know, a comedy drama that deals with murder. I mean, the, t- the clue's in the title. But in that kind of pastiche of true crime podcast way, it still functions in all these all the, as a pastiche of true crime podcasts and fans of true crime podcasts, podcasts and fans of famous people. It's fucking brilliant. Just the fact that you've got Steve Martin and Martin Short, two of the funniest people in the world, who have been two of the funniest people in the world, who are proper best friends in real life, bouncing off each other in a delightful way. It's fantastic. Selena Gomez absolutely is is funny and charming and smart at the same time. They bring in, new, in the new season, you've got um, Cara Delevingne, who um, pops up as Mabel's love interest, basically, works in an art gallery and gets in, is into Mabel's art. You've got um, the fantastic Tina Fey is back, who hosts the Rival podcast, and she pops up. You've got the br- absolute, you've got amazing. You've got um, the fact that Shirley MacLaine, fucking Shirley MacLaine, <laughs> who's 88 years old, by the way, <laughs> Pops up in episode two, and it's inc- and she's brilliant. Still got it. Still got the comic timing. She plays this imperious character. I won't give away who she is because that would be a spoiler. But I mean, this show gets fucking Shirley MacLaine just to do a cameo, you know, in an episode. I hope she maybe she's be a returning character. I don't know. Amy yeah. Schumer is the new Sting. Amy Schumer plays herself, who's taken over Sting's apartment, and oh she keeps making jokes about being in Sting's apartment, and she's hilarious, and she wants. <laughs> The gang, to, she wants to make some a TV version of Only Murders oh in the Building based on the podcast Cool Only Murders in the Building, which will be a really funny comedy based on. I mean, it's but if that sounds smug, it's not. It somehow oh, managed to be it. incredibly meta and self-referential and all of those things, but in a delightful, light, frothy way it's got the best cast it's got the it's, it's brilliantly written it, it, the tone of it it gets a little bit serious sometimes when it needs to um but that that lightness of touch even when it's kind of dealing with serious stuff is is astonishing oh my god i can't get enough of it i've already halfway through this season it is brilliant and uh, you can this is the kind of show you really can judge someone if they take against <laughs> it like james has done I you have to question them yeah <laughs> Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. So this is an indictment of my character yeah. that I don't like only murders in the building. Basically. Fair yeah. enough. Fair enough. Well, it does return then to Disney Plus on the 28th of June if you wish to watch it there. Also out this week, I should mention the Terminal List lands on Prime Video on the 1st of July, which is the Navy SEAL drama with Chris Pratt. Unfortunately, it is embargoed. So while we have seen it, we cannot talk about it. Uh, perhaps we will do so next week. We'll see. Is there anything else this week, Boyd, that we've missed? Well, the big event of on um, Friday is the, the Stranger Things um, oh, ep- yes, episodes, right. ep- episodes 8 and 9, Volume 2. 
two of season four arrives on Friday, and um, it's going to be four hours. Basically, the penultimate episode is 90 minutes. The final episode is two and a half fucking hours. So <laughs> I do believe bullshit. that everyone, including me and Kate Bush, will be primed, ready, <laughs> first thing Friday morning to watch those four hours of Stranger <laughs> Things season four finale. Glad you're allowed to watch four hours of telly first thing on Friday morning. <laughs> yeah. uh, yes, I will. I will be watching that at some point uh, on that day as well. It's exciting. It's exciting stuff. Um, I want to mention okay. as well the late late show with James Corden's doing his week. He does a week of shows in London every. He usually did it every year until the um, pandemic came along. But he's back in London from Tuesday on Sky Comedy, and now a week of. Um, of so it'll be recorded a few hours before in in London, and he's got amazing guests, including he's got a thing with the president of the united states of america it was announced today okay go. pick of the week oh god um at least queer is fake i guess yeah i'd go for any modes in the building personally yeah but it's a good week again i mean even westworld wasn't that bad <laughs> well westworld would be my pick of the week actually i uh, i thought it was fabulous Fabulous stuff. Well, that is it for this week's show. Please do shower us with reviews and five-star ratings if you feel the urge. And if you have no stars to give, then please do follow us at Pilot TV Pod, as well as at James C. Dyer, at Beth K. Webb, and at Boyd Hilton. Uh, next week, childcare gets a bit demonic in The Baby, uh, which comes to Sky. And the embargo will, of course, lift it on the terminal list as well. Uh, so we will see you then. Hopefully, next week's podcast will be a higher mood piece. Oh, for God's sake. <laughs> Horrible. Pilot out. <laughs>